Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those who don't prescribe to a gender, welcome to the GOT Got Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, people. They say hey back. Spencer, today we are wrapping up our coverage of Season 7 of HBO's Game of Thrones, and we're reviewing an episode titled The Dragon and the Wolf. Spencer, what do you think of this episode? Yeah, I thought it was a noticeable improvement over the last one. I had some quibbles with it, but it it succeeded in several things and offered some interesting theories and ponderings for next season. Oh, and initial note uh, to our extensive video, video audience, we are very sorry that it's been about two weeks of delays, but between a mix of work and literally acts of God, we've had a few issues that have delayed us from recording. Yeah, yeah. I, those um, that, that know me know that I got stuck in Florida, which that's the sentence you never want to say. Uh, <laughs> and trying to get home uh, in North Carolina where the hurricane was threatening, although the, the worst of the hurricane certainly didn't hit us, but... Um, you know, thoughts and prayers for the the folks that uh, it did hit down a little bit south of where I live. Uh, I think Wilmington got the worst. Wilmington was apparently, according to all news reports, suddenly became an island as a result of this storm, which just shows how much rain and devastation these things can inflict. But we weathered it, and we are here to bring you a certain degree of entertainment this this fine day. Speaking of devastation, oh good. <laughs> this episode uh, features the um, the much anticipated meeting between Cersei and Danny, um, which I think is really one of the highlights of this, not just this season, but the uh, uh, maybe the whole series. I, this queenly battle, this final bringing together of this war of the queens has just been anticipated for so damn long. These two have been playing chess this entire season, and we were so eager to see whether they could have a conversation without just knifing each other, either literally or metaphorically. Yeah, so we'll get into that because we, we you've listened to this episode or this uh, podcast before. You know, we start with a recap, then we go to uh, best line of the episode. I and I alone decide that because I'm emperor of that segment. Then we go to a little segment we call book nerd bitching with our certified card carrying book nerd, Mister Spencer Pants. Happy to represent. <laughs> All right, well let's jump into it. We start with the um, opening credits. Uh, glad to see Robert Baratheon is still the king of King's Landing. I like that it's been one of recurring motifs of the course of this season is just ripping on them for not adjusting that. How much would it take for them to fix that minor detail? <laughs> Seriously. But uh, yeah, it's good to see that the Baratheons are still hanging in there. Spencer, and for those that care, uh, Spencer, you want to guess uh, what t-shirt I'm rocking today? I Well, you know, if I was to hazard a guess, I'm guessing it is the banner of our one true king, Stannis Baratheon. Ding, ding, ding. That's correct. I am rocking the Stannis shirt today. Nothing else to talk about in the um, credits, so we'll jump right into the first scene, which is King's Landing, where we see the Unsullied march up to the gates, and then we hear the, and in comes the uh, Dothrakis. Um, God, there's a lot of Dothraki soldiers. Yeah, I love the point of contrast, too, but we see the Unsullied in just silent lockstep, just sitting motionless outside the gates in utter intimidating formation. And then the Dothraki screamers just charge on past them. It just shows how damn diverse and terrifying Danny's army is at this point. So that she's got every range of what can be terrifying about soldiery. Yeah. But then we cut to uh, the battlements up at the top of the wall. Um, and it's Braun and Jamie. And they're preparing their defenses. And uh, some unknown red shirt Lannister person comes up and says, tells uh, Lord Braun, which he likes, <laughs> he likes hearing that. Uh, that they have 500 barrels of oil, and he says make 500 more. Spencer, what jumped out at me here as I was thinking, all right, so let's say they seize Danny, 
and the Dothraki and the Unsullied want to storm the gates, mm-hmm. do you think they're getting in? I mean, if they got 500 barrels of oil, they can dump on them. I mean, it's gone as unquestionably hurt, and I thought this scene definitely showed that there is still a surviving Lannister army. There, Those battlements looked pretty full of Lannister soldiers who are getting pretty well prepared for this oncoming attacking force, and I'm guessing the Unsullied didn't make it halfway across the entire way across the continent without a few messages making it to King's Landing that they were coming. So, this would be a bloody fight. I mean, King's Landing's not the most famously defensible city in the realm, but if they try to storm it without any degree of preparation, without seemingly even having made ladders, much less any siege implements, it's going to be a bloody slog if they're going to want to get in. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and good job by you. Shout out to you, because you called that in a previous episode that the Lannister Lannisters probably still had a formidable army, army and it looks like they do. Um, so what to talk about here? There's a philosophical discussion between Bronn and Jamie about human motivation. <laughs> when... when Braun seems astonished that men without cocks would be doing anything, just had any desire to do anything. And I love that at the end of their debate, Jamie's kind of forced to concede, maybe it is all cocks in the end. It's just like, I guess all human motivation, the foundations of human race and our progress is built around the penis. So two things. One, that's potential best line of the episode. Two, I'm going to isolate that last thing you said. And just, just dump it in. <laughs> let that be saved for the record. When all of this has been reduced to ash, let some ancient archae- some future archaeologists find that and conclude, man, that generation was confused. <laughs> all right. Well, then um, we cut to Tyrion and Jon sailing in. Um, and as impressive as Danny's army looks, Euron's fleet is right up there. Um, he seems to have a thousand ships. Again, we talked about him essentially spamming the create ship button and, you know, whatever video game he's playing, but his fleet is unquestionably large and impressive and probably far outstrips whatever remains of Danny's armada. We've seen essentially two separate chunks of Danny's fleet be obliterated now by um, the uh, Greyjoy army, by the Greyjoy armada. So yeah. if it comes to a naval battle, I'm betting Cersei's allied forces are going to win that one. Yeah. So this is the, by my account, this is the first time that John has ever seen King's Landing. Ah, uh, yeah, I think that is very true. So he seems astonished, uh, and he asks Tyrion how many people live in King's Landing. Yet again, showrunners, uh, <laughs> double D's, nice round number, one million, give or take. Easy to explain. <laughs> which, which, which has been an interesting shift over time, because I think if we remember correctly, just a couple seasons back when uh, Jamie was talking with Quyburn, and Quyburn asked him, how many people have you saved? And Jamie said, half million. So I guess maybe the population of King's Landing has doubled inside of 10 years possible maybe well with cersei's reign i'm sure everybody was just eager to get there uh, yeah it just seems like the place to be what with the starvation and the besieging and the evil lord s ruling over from from the red keep (laughs) that just sounds like a destination spot in westeros right now yeah no my theory on this is that Tyrion doesn't know he's just throwing (laughs) a number out there or or, or (laughs) he just doesn't care to give john accurate information it's like what what are you talking about a million sure yeah whatever so john points out that's more people than live in the entire North. Why would I, people want to live that way? Which is almost certainly also false, but, you know, details. <laughs> Tyrion explains, there's work in the city, and the brothels are far superior. <laughs> I like it, though, because, like, John and Tyrion seem to get each other, because when Tyrion makes that crack, you know, most of Tanny's entourage, you'd think of Grey Worm, Missende, they would all cringe at this, and John just kind of looks down, and he's like, yeah, well, he would know. <laughs> 
yeah, they've got a good banter between the two of them, and I love that it's basically hearkening back to the early parts of season one with their relationship. Yeah, me too. And then we cut to Sandor, and he's checking on his pet white, and, spoiler alert, the white is still pretty pissed. What is it with the hound and poking the zombie? This has been basically his role <laughs> over the course of the last two episodes. That's true. That's true. He just likes a punching bag. Yeah, you know, how... It is the weirdest thing, because we see three times over the course of this, the hound is the one that is tasked, or just chooses to, do the thing that sets the zombie off. Yeah, yeah. And then Tyrion and Jon and some Dothraki are walking toward the dragon pit. So this scene where Danny's folks are walking in with Bronn is really good, I thought. I love the dialogue here. This uh, banter between everyone, between um, Tyrion, Podrick, Bronn, Varys, all of them talking together... Yeah, absolutely. It's a, you know, there's some reunions there. There's some, uh, you know, recalling past battles or past uh, shared experiences. I thought it was pretty good. It was. And I also like one thing that happens before then of when Cersei's talking with the mountain and Cersei being Cersei, she basically gives the hound, she gives the mountain her murder order is that, okay, the things go to shit. You kill Danny, you kill Tyrion, you kill Jon, and then just have fun. Just, you know, free form, free form murdering. Do, do your thing. I love that it's essentially her level of preparation is, okay, in what order does everyone need to die when this inevitably goes to pot? Yeah, no, and then Jamie looks, like, horrified. Yeah. <laughs> Which, hey, come on, Jamie. You, this is This surprised news. you? No. <laughs> no, it's not. This is totally on brand. This is, I mean, this is peak seriously. I mean, you are literally sharing this woman's bed. There is nothing hidden between the two of you. You've seen her in all sense naked. You know what she's capable of and intends to do before this day is over. Uh, maybe there is some secrets between the two of them. Maybe we'll get to that toward the end of the episode. Perhaps so, yes. So they're walking up, and um, I think Tyrion says something along the lines of, you know, he's talking about the Dragon Pit history, and I'm hoping there's a little bit of book nerd bitching here on the Dragon Pit. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. If you choose so. If you choose so. Um, and he's, he talks about how, you know, it was once the most dangerous place in the world. How's the dragons? And then, you know, we get this sense, uh, we start to get the explanation that the dragons grew smaller and smaller until finally, toward the end of uh, the, uh, the, the Targaryens having dragons, they were just these sickly little creatures. And I think Tyrion even says it, it was like a sick joke that they built this big thing and then they have this little sickly dog looking dragon. Which is certainly a common theory, and it's definitely a theory put forward by the Meisters, but whether it's true or not is honestly subject to debate. But as I said, we can address that in book nerd pitching if you so wish. Yeah, and then there's like the transition where I think Tyrion said it's one of the most dangerous places in the world, and, and then someone says, I don't, can't remember who it is, says maybe it still is, and that's when they see um, Bronn, who's there, and he says, you know, your friends got here before you, and it's uh, the delegation from the north, right? It's we have Brienne and Pod. Indeed, and this, this just leads to a wonderful collection of reunions, as you said, of where this is the first time Pod and Tyrion have seen each other in what I guess is years. I mean, last time Podrick saw Tyrion, he'd basically been imprisoned for killing Joffrey. That's pretty much the last he saw of him, and then he certainly peaced out after he killed Tywin. Yeah, I love Tyrion and Pod. Tyrion starts it off with a pleasant surprise and isn't in an unpleasant situation. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's it's a good quote there. I think they say back and forth. Didn't think I'd see you again, my lord. Supporting the enemy, no less. Well, hard to blame you. And then Tyrion just quips back, eh, "Cersei will anyway." <laughs> no, I like that. I liked it too because like there was some um, sympathy from Pod about Tyrion's stance and what he's done. Yeah, 
it's, it's interesting as well, because Tyrion essentially kind of abandoned Podrick. He didn't really have a choice in the matter. I mean, he just killed the most powerful person in Westeros. He kind of had to get out of Dodge. But he didn't exactly leave him a calling card or ask him to come, either. But Podrick holds no grudges. He found his own way in the world and has now allied with Brienne, who herself has a bit of re a reunion with the Hound, who decidedly parted on less than good terms, if memory serves. Before we get there, um, shout out season two. Bra Braun tells Tyrion to hurry up and says, come on, you can suck his magic cock later. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the whole Miranese knot and the tripod have been a recurring theme throughout the show. Good reference. <laughs> Throwback to the tripod. Yes, but then um, we get the Hound and Brienne and their reunion. And it, Brienne kind of slows up to, to talk about, to talk to him and says something along the lines of, I thought you were dead. He says, you came pretty close, which, true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they both just, and it's interesting, I, even when they were fighting, what was that, back in season four, I think? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I, I never thought they disliked each other. They were just kind of talking past each other about trying to protect Arya, and that's what they kind of conclude in this reunion conversation where they were both like, look, I was just trying to do what's best for her. And the Hound, still protective of Arya, says, well, if you're here, who's taking care of her? Yeah. And <laughs> good, good line by Brienne says, the only person who needs looking after is anyone who gets in her way. Which the Hound has this, I mean, the actor um, really nails this because he has this just like really heartwarming smile where he's like, oh, she's okay and she's independent. She's on her own. She's kicking ass. I love it. Yeah, this is a real <laughs> a Hound smile watch alert because I think we can count the number of times the Hound has legitimately smiled on probably one hand over the course of this entire series. And so I like Arya got one of them. Yeah, me too. Which not a surprise. I mean, he he really did take on a a really protective sense with Arya. And true, I, at this point, Spencer, do you think that the Hound could beat Arya? So I'm not so sure. It's hard to say. It really depends how much you think that Brienne was holding back. I mean, if Arya is indeed using needle, then Hound cover yourself in plate and just wade in. She's not getting through the armor with that. God, you're but... a big armor guy. It's a key aspect of warfare that the show continually ignores. I mean, basically on the show, the guy who's wearing the most armor is the guy who's going to die first to prove the scene's dramatic. But, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say. I don't think the show itself has any clear impression of what Arya would be capable of in a melee. Um, and I think that the show itself is kind of ambiguous about whether um, Brienne, in a rematch against the Hound, who would win that. Because if as we remember correctly, the Hound was literally rotting at the time that he was fighting Brienne. Yeah, and you notice that the uh, the limp that he had has just slowly gone away. Yeah. <laughs> no more limp, just... Continuity, right, whatever. <laughs> but I, I, I do love that the two of them pretty much immediately bond over the fact that both were ultimately just trying to protect Arya. Um, and they still have a certain degree of peace in that situation. Right. Well, Danny's gang gets there, minus Danny. Of course. And... <laughs> here's something this is like breaking the fourth wall but i i find it just absolutely hilarious so braun then suggests that he and bod he he and tripod go have a drink do you know why they had to go have a drink uh because is it because braun assumes that everybody's going to die inside there what, what, what are you thinking here <laughs> no the actor who plays braun had a relationship with with Lena Headley. <laughs> they and can't appear in the they, same scene together. And we're, we're, I'm 
many years later? I, they they didn't even date when they were on the show, so it has to be at least ten years ago. These two had a relationship, and they still can't put them in the same scene. I find that hilarious. That the biggest show in the world still has to deal with some uh, shit like that. <laughs> I have forgotten about that entirely. That is such a great catch. That we talk about people burying the hatchet on this. The actors are still incapable of it. Some decades after that. Well, how, how long ago were they together? It's probably been years. It's been years. I think it has to be at least ten years because they they weren't they weren't dating when the show started. And Man, show's been that, going, what, seven, eight years? That's parting on bad terms. I know. I thought I was petty. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> serious, serious amounts of petty here. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's not even necessarily in the same scene. They don't, they're not even willing to be in the same general shooting area together, apparently. <laughs> well, then Cersei strolls in with her Queen's Guard, her brother, Kyburn, and Euron. I think that's the total there. And it's amazing to have, you know, we were looking forward to this ever since we heard some of the production spoilers, but having this many of the show's stars in one scene is incredible. Mm -hmm. I I really was looking forward to this scene, and it delivers. And specifically in the acting, and shout out Lena Headley, we just had that, what was it, the Emmys we just had, right, a couple weeks ago? Mm -hmm. And Game of Thrones, season seven, one, which a little side side tangent here, Spencer. If I'm, you're, you're an Emmy voter. You're part of the Hollywood Foreign Press. You get to vote for Best Dramatic uh, Television Series. You get Season 2 of Westworld or Season 7 of Game of Thrones. Go. Uh, And here's the problem. With so many of these award shows, they are years after the fact in recognizing quality when it comes to something that is outside of their normal wheelhouse. And fantasy inevitably falls into its own... Fantasy and sci-fi inevitably falls into its own kind of ghetto. So inevitably, those voters will, years after the fact, be kind of begrudgingly recognized that a show is awesome and has been incredibly relevant to the world of media over the course of a multi-year run. We saw it like with Lord of the Rings, where the first Lord of the Rings won some awards but was pretty much shafted for Best Picture. And then the third one got everything because finally the Academy kind of was forced to recognize, okay, this is world-changing. I think under that logic, Game of Thrones inevitably wins everything because... It's been seven years of coming to this moment, and they're finally now having having to recognize everything it's done. Yeah, it's going to be obnoxious when season eight is up for those awards because it won't it's... matter. <laughs> it will not <laughs> matter what it's up against. They'll give it everything. Yeah, I think I probably would have voted for Westworld season two, but I'll tell you what I wouldn't have voted for: Fatty Newman over Lena Headley because Lena Headley slays season seven of Game oh, of Thrones. She's one of the finest things about the show. I mean, she always has been, but this season in particular, she has been on top of her game. So she strolls in and she shoots Tyrion a look that I almost fell off my couch. <laughs> it's one of those things of where she... It, it's one of those things where she's never previously displayed magical abilities, but if Tyrion caught fire right then, everyone would just kind of go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Saw that coming. Yeah, and, and it was funny because Peter Dinklage actually said that they had to record that twice. Because the first time that Lena Headley shot him that look, he he was flummoxed. He screwed up the next line. (laughs) It's just raw, unadulterated hatred. I mean, just (laughs) utter wrath that she's summoning when she stares at him. It just shivers you to the bones. (laughs) Yeah, so she shoots that look. And then they kind of get in place. And everybody's looking around, looking at everybody. There's a lot of really great cinematography here as they're kind of capturing the looks among people. And... Right from Jump Street, The Hound, and I should be prepared with my Clegane Bowl music. I don't have it right now, but The Hound walks right up to the mountain. No regard for anything else that's going on here. And he basically just says, well, you look like shit. What have they done to you? Um, 
but and then he what does he do Spencer? he says something along the lines of you know what's coming for you uh, you always I, have i i got it written down because it's gonna be one of my quote nominees remember me yeah you do you're even fuck, you're even fucking uglier than i am now what did they do to you that nah, doesn't matter that's not how it ends for you you know who's coming for you you've always known oh it's just like it's a great line but the practical oh, it's question it's the practical question i'm asking at this point is that essentially they've had like a stare down for 20 seconds Nobody's coming forward. And so the hound basically makes the introduction <laughs> statement for this conference. <laughs> it's like the most on-brand thing for the hound, that he would just like, no regard for anything else. He's like, I don't like that fucker. I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> just, and it just kind of like goes back to his seat. It's just like everybody else then returns to staring each other down with like, okay, so that's what we're starting with today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then Cersei, what I thought, what was hilarious is Cersei is so mad that Danny isn't there. She's oh, just yeah. oozing with hatred. And she asks, you know, when's she going to be here? Uh, and Tyrion's like, shortly, she's coming. And then cue the music. Oh, yeah. The dragon flies in. And amazing CGI here with Drogon landing and then kind of walking down into the dragon pit and dropping Danny off. And what I want to point out about this is as Danny's walking up, the look on Cersei, Cersei is 12 out of 10 angry at this point. Yeah. Not only does she have a big, impressive dragon, she also now, for the first time, can verify that, yeah, Danny is just as beautiful as everybody says. <laughs> yeah, th this is the prophecy. The new, younger, and most beautiful queen is now greeting her in person to overthrow her. Cersei was so angry. Oh, yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing. I think Danny's made two, for all the most impressiveness that this entrance is, for how she's caught Cersei on the back foot in a couple ways and just rendered her incredibly pissed off, I feel like Danny makes two strategic errors here. Error number one, she brought Tyrion, which, if you're trying to put your best foot forward to actually make a negotiating point, Tyrion's not probably the guy you want to bring for image purposes. I can understand why. He's her hand, she doesn't have much of a practical choice. But as seen, his mere presence in the room has kind of pissed off Cersei to the point of uncontrollable anger. Point number sure. two. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm sure that Tyrion counseled Cersei and said, "You can," or uh, Danny and said, "You can bring me or not bring me." She's going to hate you the same. I mean, she, she probably is yeah. mad at you as she can be. Bigger, bigger error though. Danny brings both her dragons. I was going to point this out. You're reading off my notes. It, okay, you know they know one dragon's dead. Your enemies don't know one dragon's dead. It's yep. useful that your enemies don't know that one of your three nuclear missiles has now disappeared from the board. If you're going to hide that fact, don't bring both of the other two. You bring one. You ride in on one dragon, because that's the way it's a lot easier to explain out why you don't have the other two. Because you just brought one for arrival purposes, and you're keeping the other two in reserve. If you bring two out of three, everyone's going to ask where the other one is. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. That that occurred to me as well. Um, and I think it's a mistake from Danny's part, and Cersei picks up on it, which we, we'll get to later. Yeah. Well, then Tyrion starts to talk. He's the, the great facilitator here. And then Euron. Immediately. <laughs> Euron, <laughs> he starts taunting Theon about having Yara. Um, and then Tyrion looks at Jamie like, who what's with this fucking guy? And Jamie's like, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't tell you. And then uh, Tyrion says, "Well, perhaps we should start with larger concerns." And he says, "Then why are you talking? You're the smallest concern here." <laughs> Which weak, weak joke. And Tyrion rightly points out that it was pretty corny. But then Euron gets really fucking mean 
and starts talking about how dwarves are murdered at birth and on the iron islands to spare the parents and it's interesting to me that when he goes into this jamie tells him to shut up yeah says perhaps you should sit down i and i think that's a relic of jamie felt some like you know uh sympathy for just how mean euron was being to Tyrion. yeah and practical question i have to ask is that as said euron is directly attacking Tyrion here is directly disrupting the proceedings is this pre-planned is this all part of a strategy on cersei's point which has some relevance given what we later find out about her planning or is this literally euron being unable to contain himself and being an awful person uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that they probably, my guess would be they probably agreed that Euron needed to act a little unwieldy yeah. to make his departure later seem realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, to make him seem like he's not particularly 100% loyal to Cersei. He's just kind of off on his own. Um, but I think the, when he goes into the, you know, well, we we murder your kind at birth, I can't imagine Cersei, maybe Cersei fed him that line, but I think that's just mean, cruel Euron coming out. I, I agree. It's certainly probably a mix. Maybe Cersei gave him a plan saying, be disruptive, be kind of a dick, be, be me barely controlling you, and then just let him do his own thing with uh, ad-libbing the lines. And he only too happily filled in the gaps there. Yeah, totally agree. Well, then uh, Cersei does say, sit down or leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does. He sits down, but he's still kind of smirking and has that weird like Jack Sparrow pirate walk that he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> and Tyrion continues talking and Cersei is having none of this idea of a truce. She thinks it's stupid. She makes the point, Hey, if I pull back my armies, how do I know you're not just going to, you know, invade and, and take everything over? I, it's hard for me to know. Basically she's not taking this seriously. And John steps in and he starts to talk and he says something along the lines of, you know, everyone in King's Landing, if we don't win this war, everyone in King's Landing will be dead. And then Cersei says something along the lines of, well, I imagine it'll be an improvement for most folks. Here's my point to you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. It's your city, Cersei. Why are you joking about how much it sucks? Like, you rule this thing, and you're like, eh, well, they might as well be dead. It's shit out there. <laughs> what? This is Cersei, of course. This is this is the woman who said as the basis by which of her rule, power is power. She don't give a damn about any little particular cog in her machine, any pawn on the board. These peasants are an annoyance to her just in the sense that they have to require resources to live. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought like, this, is, this would be like, you know, if Trump comes out and he's like, yeah, well, uh, Russia might take us over. Uh, but that would be an improvement because, you know, America fucking blows right now. You'd be like, what are you doing? You're the president, dude. Like, like Cersei, you're the queen. You should be talking about how great it is in King's Lady. But anyway. She's, she's not a democratic figure. She rules. She rules basically at the will of the people who are in that room. Right by might. That's exactly. That's uh, that should be Cersei's hell's words. <laughs> um, uh, so then you know, John steps ahead. forward to deliver his quintessential "living versus the dead" argument, which you, you think he'd try to give it up on this one because it's never worked at this point. No, oh, no, but he he's tried and true. I mean, he's got this speech in his back pocket. This is like a stump speech for John. He yeah. knows it. It's not going anywhere. Um, but I would like to point out that throughout this scene. Cersei doesn't seem that hostile toward John. Have you? Did you notice that? No, and I think that ties into one of her key plans here at the end of, at the end of her proposals on the truce is that she doesn't want to antagonize John. She doesn't want to represent to John that she is a threat or an enemy, or whatever else. She kind of wants to view John as what should be a neutral party to this transaction. Yeah. Well, Tyrion realizes this is going nowhere, and finally just says, "Look, we brought you something." 
and up comes the hound with the white in a box. Yeah, <laughs> you remember I, that? Remember that uh, that song, Dick in a Box, from like ten years ago? <laughs> Yes, I remember the song Dick in a Box. So every time I watch this, I'm going, it's a white in a box. <laughs> I love how he carries it in, too, because it's just meant to be the most dramatic carry-in ever. It's supposed, to, it's supposed to be the most obvious, everyone has to stare here right now kind of way of carrying this object in. My question is the timing. Could the hound hear the conversation that was going on, and then he started to walk up? Uh, he heard the scene director say it's time for the actor to come in now. That's probably enough. That's right. Um, and then he, he comes up and he's got his pet white. Um, and uh, he he puts the white down and he very dramatically unseals the box. And he kicks it over. And how convenient it runs right at Cersei. <laughs> like, yes. Well, I, think, I think we named this guy Steve previously. Yeah, Steve does his best to represent that I am a scary zombie. And just charges right for Cersei. And let's, let's be fair about this. I think this is probably the only time over the course of this entire series we've seen Cersei abjectly scared for her person right because she yeah because she's been in king's landing the entire show yeah uh except for when they went north in season one and i don't think she's ever had a physical threat like this and i'd like to point out the mountain's reflexes were a little slow here (laughs) yes he really did not step in in time to protect her if that white if if, uh sandor hadn't yanked the leash back i think cersei would have got got Eh, it wouldn't have made it too far. Maybe just take part of a cheek. He would have been there. He would have helped. I, I do love that of all all the assembled lords are scared to hell, except Quibern. Quibern's intrigued. <laughs> oh, nominal detail. And and as we mentioned in the last episode, um, me and you watched this this episode together. You you came up to lovely North Carolina and uh, mm-hmm. rented one of those big big projector screens. And we had a party and made meat pie. It was lovely. And when we watch this, and Quibern picks up the hand. And he's just like super fascinated with it. All of us cracked up. Like, oh, yeah, we were in the moment, we were laughing. It was perfect. But uh, then, then John uh, goes through with his demonstration. He shows that there are only two things that can kill them: fire, um, and he sets the hand on fire that he had taken from Quiburn, and then dragon glass, which he stabs uh, the white with a dragon glass, and it just collapses. Is he forgetting his sword, or is the show now explicitly saying that Valerian steel doesn't work on the zombies? Details, details. Details. Come on. Go <laughs> I think on. they're really I think they're really setting up Valerian Steel to be the thing that kills the White Walkers. I don't think they really they I don't to my recollection they have not addressed if Valerian Steel kills on site. Uh oh hold on. No, but they did. They did, Spencer, because he John cuts the hand off of the white with his sword. Mm-hmm. So they're they're saying that Valerian Steel does not kill whites. It, which is interesting because they basically are saying Florian Steel is you know the anti White Walker magic or whatever else, but apparently it doesn't work on their automations. I, I suppose. I mean, they've not given us anything to clearly say that Florian Steel works on the zombies. I just find that an odd decision. Yeah, me too. But anyway, then John gets to drop his all timeline. Definitely a consideration for best line of the episode. Probably a consideration for most important or at least best summary line of the show. There is only one war that matters, the Great War, and it is here. What did you think about them killing off the zombie pretty damn quick? It seemed like a rather quick demonstration of what's meant to be their ace in the hole to prove to the, all the southern lords that the threat is coming. Don't you kind of want to put that thing on tour? You know, do a Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey bring it to each city to show, look, zombies, send all your armies now. 
I, I don't know. I mean, I think they're really only trying to, to tell Cersei. If I was Cersei, I'd be like, no, keep it alive. Like, I'm, I'm, but if Cersei was bought in, which she is not, but if she was bought in, she'd say, leave it alive. I got to show my generals. I got to show everybody. Yeah. So they, they, they know why I'm marching them north. I mean, it seems like they're betting way too much on Cersei being convinced by this. I mean, let's say she doesn't buy in. Don't you then want to tour it around to all of the lords that are allied to her to get them on your side, even if she isn't? But John but that's wants to why, make... <laughs> That's why this the whole plan was so damn stupid. We yeah. all knew from Jump Street that Cersei was not going to buy into this. She was going to use whatever you know position they have to leverage her strengths, and that's exactly what she does. So Tyrion, bad job by you. Shitty plan. At this point, if Cersei just wants to deny that there ever was a zombie, who's going to say otherwise? No one else has seen it. It's those people that are in that room that are either her mortal enemies, so of course they're going to lie, or imminently allied with her. Yeah. Well, and Cersei dramatically says that she's going to fight alongside Danny and John. But... Yep, yep. She has terms. She has conditions. One little caveat. The king in the north must stay in the north. He must not choose sides. And, and she notably gives John some credit. She says that if Ned Stark's son says that he's got that he's going to do it, I will believe him. If he says he's going to remain neutral, I'll buy onto this because he is Ned Stark's son and that it was an honorable man. Question for you: If John had said, "Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I can abide by those terms. I won't choose sides. I'll stay in the north," Cersei's still not bought in, right? I think she would at least appear on the surface and maybe even a little bit more legitimately bought in because she looks legitimately pissed with oh John. yeah she's fired up yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, one thing i point i want to point out is danny sees the writing on the wall here and she jumps in before john can respond and goes oh when you ask it of him you won't ask it of me and cersei points out the obvious i would never ask it of you because you'd never agree to it and if you do i trust you even less than i do now like but that was a reach for Danny because she was trying to bail John out because she could see it coming. She could see the weird, stark consternation, yep. <laughs> the bad body language. Yep. And then he says, I cannot give you what you ask. I love that everyone is face palming the moment this happens because everyone sees it coming. <laughs> this is a spiraling train going down the tracks with no conductor in it. Everyone knows it's going to hit and everyone's going, oh, God, we didn't see this coming. Well, when he says, I don't think they... I don't think a lot of the folks on Danny, because nobody on Danny's side knew except for Danny. And so I don't think they they saw it coming, but I think when he said, I cannot give you what you ask, that's they, when everybody went, oh, shit. They, they visibly face mom. But you have to believe the moment Cersei asked John that, Tyrion's looking at this going, oh, you fucker, don't say it. Don't do it. Don't. Yeah, he, Peter Dinklage does play it out well, and Peter Dinklage won the Emmy um, for this season. And <laughs> I don't know, did you see his acceptance speech? I actually didn't, no. He seemed put off that he won. He was not happy. He re- he said through his uh, his um, acceptance speech, it seemed like he really wanted um, Nikolai Costa Waldo, who plays Jamie Lannister, to win. Jamie does do excellently this season. I mean, Peter Dinklage is always great, but it, it's interesting to see those that have emerged around him as just incredible actors over the course of the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, as said, I mean, John's quote is worthy of being noted for our best quotes list because it. It's so John. It's so Starky. It says, I am an honest man, or I try to be. That's why I cannot give you what you ask. I cannot serve two queens. I have already pledged myself to Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen. And Danny simultaneously it cuts to her, and she simultaneously looks flattered and really, really annoyed. Yeah, I know. It's very conflicting emotions for her. And then you're right. Cersei just flips out. The... 
then there's nothing left to discuss. Have yeah. fun dealing with the dead. We'll deal with whatever's left of you. I mean, this rattles her almost as much as the zombie. It looks like she, looks like she really thought this was going to be a useful concession that they could all agree to and make. Well, she probably figured out that she's fucked. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the two of them are already aligned. Um, if you are, you know, an un... Um, you haven't picked sides and you're a lord, who are you picking? The, the, the army of the north along with the lady who's got two armies and two to three dragons? Or mean old Cersei? Uh, she, she also probably recently knows, too, that if the North, led by Jon Snow, joins this alliance, he's probably bringing most of the River Lords and the Vale behind him, too. In which yep. case, she's essentially got very, very little backing her anymore. Right. It goes back to that discussion that Cersei and Jaime had in Episode 1, where she goes, I am the Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. And he says two at best, or yeah. three at best, I think. Yeah, the Westerlands, the Iron Isles, maybe the Stormlands, kind of the yeah, Crownlands. Stormlands. And probably only reasonably parts of those anymore. I mean, she just lost Casterly Rock. Yeah, yeah, and and not to mention that that Robert Baratheon is sitting in King's Landing. Oh yes, of course, and the and the ghost of Stannis Baratheon rules supreme from from uh, Stormlands, of course. <laughs> and then I'm going to put this up for line of the episode only because it makes me chuckle. Tyrion just says, "I wish you hadn't done that." <laughs> yeah, everyone just kind of clusters around and just asks, "Dude, why?" Have you ever thought of li- learning to lie? Yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and John upholds to his moral principles and says, I'm not going to swear an oath I can't uphold. Talk about my father if you want. Tell me that it's the attitude that got him killed. But when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then God, all... Spencer did your research. The, quote uh, after quote. Woo. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies, and lies won't help us in this fight. And it's a very Johnny quote, and you have to sympathize with him to a certain degree. It is no, the most don't. moral stance. Boo. It's just not what they needed right now. Boo. I, and, and, I mean, of course John does this. It's Starkian, as you pointed out, but it's tactically fucking dumb. Oh, oh yeah. Tyrion shoves, uh, responds immediately with, that is indeed a problem. The more, more, the more immediate problem is that we're fucked. We're fucked. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> It's, it's just so resigned. Problem is that we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's it's just there's so much just dear lord we put everything on this everything was building up to this moment and you missed the layup just why? Ooh, basketball reference. You know, I, I I just kind of I like all those. I googled all those before I made it. I was hoping I got some of them right. <laughs> Not quite J.R. Smith running out the clock in game one, uh, but close. I, I know some of those words. <laughs> uh, and then Danny comes up. She's even miffed at John, but she can't be. She's not mad at him. She's just frustrated with the situation. And John, you know, he says, "Me too. I'm. I'm not happy about this." But that's who I am. That's what I had to do. Now, Tyrion, season seven, Tyrion, king of bad ideas, comes up with yet another whopper, and says, "I've got to go see my sister by myself." <laughs> what the fuck is he doing? That is so stupid. I feel like this is the showrunner saying we got to get Peter Dinklage and Lena Headley in a room together because they're our two best actors and it's going to be a powerful scene. Okay, let's shoehorn it in. And again, this really shows how much the show is being built around having great moments. It's like they've got a checklist and regardless of how much sense it makes them to connect them from point A to point B, they're doing it. And it does make for a great scene. It's a very powerful scene between Peter Dinklage and uh, Lena Headley. But... No one looks at this and goes, he's going to come back alive from this experience. I, I did think that they were going to kill Tyrion off here. And I remember telling you when we were watching it, I was like, I think he's, he's going to die here. 
Yeah. You were you you have so little faith in the show. You were like, no, it'd probably be stupid. But yeah, <laughs> I thought they were going to kill him. Also because, and this is frustrating for me. Why did why did no major character die this season? That's not in keeping with how this story has been told. I mean, we've uh, yeah, I guess we lost well, Littlefinger. As we're going to say, Littlefinger does die. Yeah. He's but ma- he beca- he's a side character at this point, right? It, it's basically the point at this point is that. No major character died in the sense that if they were once a major character, they've been relegated to secondary status, and now they're just kind of killing them off to balance the books. Right. Anyway, I thought Tyrion should have died in this um, scene, but yeah. hell, as we he see died. later, as we, as we see later, I was legitimately worried that Jamie might die in one of these scenes. Yeah, me too. But anyway, let's cut to it. So Tyrion takes off. Oh, oh before he takes off, um, I liked, <laughs> I like that John's like, well, I'll go. And Tyrion right leaves like, well, she'll definitely kill you. Like that's the dumbest. Stuff. Like my idea is a whopper, but you have even <laughs> gone above and beyond, John. Yeah, what are you going to stroll in there? And I do think Cersei would have killed John if yeah. he'd have walked in there. I also think that what would have John have done? Plead again? Talk about the whole living versus dead thing again? What? Well, isn't that Tyrion's plan? I mean, he doesn't have any better uh, sort of logic or, or, or argument. I, I put forward that my theory about a certain concession that Tyrion makes is very much supported by what we see in this episode. Oh, okay. All right, well, let me go through the scene, and then you can you can enlighten everybody as to what you mean there. Okay. So Tyrion walks off, and he is about to walk in, and he's talking to Jamie. And I think these two think this is the last time that they're ever going to talk, um, which they've had that conversation, what, now, like three times or something. Yeah, it's getting um, old, really. You guys have been through I, everything. You're not going to die. I enjoy the details of the show, though, because... I thought it was fucking hilarious that Cersei kicked Jamie out of the room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, he, Jamie says something along the lines of being stupid. Um, and Tyrion's like, well, I, you, you're stupid. I'm, I'm about to walk into a room with somebody who uh, has tried to kill me twice that I know of. Now, Spencer, what are the two times that Tyrion is referencing? Well, we've got uh, the attempted assassination in King's Land uh, during the Battle of the Blackwater, which... Cersei said rather convincingly was Joffrey that did that. Um, and then I would say framing him for the trial uh, with respect to the killing of Joffrey. Those the two? Well, I don't know that she... Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's probably the two. But I feel like he could have said like four I and mean, he would have bought it. But yeah. um, He could have made up a in. number and everyone would have just nodded and went, uh-huh. I mean, he literally calls her the most murderous woman in the world and Jamie does not bat an eye. No, at this point he kind of knows what she is. Um, he walks in, Cersei says, I shouldn't be surprised. She's your type of woman. A foreign whore doesn't know her place. Which Tyrion fires back. Foreign whore, you can't kidnap and, uh, and torture or something along those lines. But Cersei goes right for the jugular, off from Jump Street, claiming that, Ciri, uh, that Tyrion has always wanted to destroy the Lannister family. And Tyrion gamely points out that he's the only one stopping that from happening. Daenerys didn't want to negotiate. She wanted to bring fire and blood. Question for you. Was this line written before the book Fire and Blood was uh, set to be published? Interesting. Hadn't thought about that. I, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to check the timing on it. Yeah, because it might have been a little shout-out. Possible Gurm. early marketing. A little Gurm shout-out. Tyrion then dares Cersei to kill him. But it, uh, it, it's interesting with the two of these, the two of them are firing back, is that Cersei throws it in the... It, well, Tyrion tries to represent from the beginning that everything I'm doing is trying to keep us alive. Every action yeah. I'm making is trying to keep our family from being eradicated wholesale right now. And he actually says he honestly regrets killing Tywin, which is an interesting concession from Tyrion. 
To which Cersei yeah. then throws back that everything you've done has been killing our family. The moment you killed Tywin, you left us to the wolves. And this is such a great scene. These two are such wonderful actors. Yeah, I don't like Cersei's logic here. She's like, you've you left us open. You left us bare. And the vultures came in and they, they destroyed us. I'm like, destroyed? You are sitting on the throne. <laughs> it didn't turn out too bad, Cersei. Well, she, she is essentially directly blaming him for the deaths of her two children, which... To a certain extended, would be really hard for me as an attorney to prove proximate cause kind of way, as a element of truth to it if you buy the destabilization after the death of Tywin. But as you say, and you were about to go into, Tyrion baits her hard with that. Tyr- yeah, he does. Tyrion he does. is looking for her to pull the trigger. Yeah, he does. He dares her. He says, go ahead and do it. And even, shout out, three-foot Peter Dinklage just staring down the mountain. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the acting there. But he's like, yeah, do it. Just do it. Tell him to kill me. Give the order. And Lena Headley has this, if you notice, her jaw is clenched. Oh, she wants it. Her, her teeth are clenched and her, her lips are open. And she's just literally, like, this is the sound of the look she's making. Like, yeah. like She's all but growling. And finally just drops her body, and then it's it's clear that the mountain shouldn't kill him. Now, question for you, Spencer. It seems to me that Cersei has some sort of mind meld with the mountain. Like, she doesn't ever give him, like, express orders in moments. Like, how, the, the mountain just kind of knows when to kill and will not, when not to. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was, it, if she'd just given him a foul glance, the mountain would have gone across that room and reduced him to paste. But she doesn't. He didn't. And Tyrion pours himself some wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I would do. Uh, so he pours the wine, and then he um, he pours her a glass, which she doesn't touch. Which right away Tyrion is a little skeptical here. Like, yeah. you're not drinking wine. Like, what's going on? Um, and Danny starts talking about how um, she or not Danny. Cersei starts talking about how the thing scared her. Of course, the white, and then she pretty obviously, I think, starts you know telling. Uh, Tyrion that she's pregnant I mean she starts rubbing her belly really awkwardly and talking about her family and this and Tyrion picks it together uh, puts it together and says you're pregnant and then we smash cut away from the scene what do you think they said after we were we were uh, the scene ended for us well first question I have to check with you about is do you think this is intentional telegraphing on Cersei's part does she want Tyrion to know that she's pregnant yes I, I think absolutely she wants Tyrion to know this fact. Because the opening line that Tyrion makes after he pours himself a drink is how much he legitimately regrets the children. Regrets them before all. That absolutely that would never be something he'd ever want to do. It's and she true. knows that's true. And she knows that's true. As much as she hates Tyrion, she knows that he would not have intentionally... I mean, she probably believes Joffrey, but Joffrey's in his own special category. He never would have intentionally hurt Tom and, and Marcella. So she, knowing that, immediately gives him a third child to care about. Yep, yep. I think it's meant to engender sympathy from Tyrion. She knows Tyrion has Danny's ear. Um, it's a no. It's a no loss move. And then here is what I offer: Tyrion has nothing that he can offer her that will convince Cersei to get on this alliance, except protection for the family and continuity of their rule, to some degree. My theory I offer is is that Tyrion knows. And they previously talked about this, that Danny's barren. He knows that she can't have kids, that her line is going to end with her. And that as a foreign interloper coming in with no con- with no rule to follow after, with no dynasty to come in her wake, that spells disaster. Is Tyrion therefore proposing that 
Cersei will in some way be protected, and her child will sit the throne after Danny. Is that the term that he offered her? Is that the basis by which he got uh, Cersei, at least in name, at least by appearances, behind this deal? Maybe. I think that that's as plausible as any other um, explanation of what occurred between the two of them to make Cersei come out uh, and pledge to fight with Danny. But I will say that if he did negotiate that, um, I think he's a little bit above his signature authority, right? Like he, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, he's he's, uh, he's out on a limb there because if you haven't vetted this with Danny, that's going to enrage her. And by the way, if Danny heard this conversation that Tyrion is having with Cersei, I think she'd be pretty miffed. Oh, yeah. Because he's basically telling Cersei, hey, like, p- part of my motivation is to protect you. And Danny, Danny's not going to like that. And that's one thing I hoped, I like that they're doing this a bit. I hoped we'd get more tension on this point over the course of the season about Tyrion's conflicted loyalties. Because as this scene really hammers home a lot of what he's going through, a lot of what he's dealing with. But that level of tension was kind of reduced to a single conversation with Danny. I think next season they inevitably have to get more into this. And I think this... Him planning outside of her, him providing his family a means of staying in charge after her, will be, a, if it's true, a serious point of conflict and a serious way that could drive a permanent wedge between Tyrion and Danny's rule. And that could be real fun and real interesting drama next season if they're going that route. Yeah, yeah, they may. I, I, I think Danny would have been really sour in how he was approaching that conversation, and it would have validated some of her concerns that she gets when her mad queen bars are high. Oh, yeah. Um, because when she starts getting fired up, the f- first thing she goes to is maybe you're just trying to protect your family. Well, this is him admitting that, yeah, he kind of does. He's straight up saying that the basis of his decision-making has been keeping his family alive, and that is, in many more than just a couple ways, contrary to the best interests of Danny's forces. Right. Well, we cut back to the dragon pit, and John is looking at what appears to be the lower jaw of a small dragon. And here's what I say to you, Spencer. No way in hell that those dragon bones would still be there. No, no. And very, very pointedly, we have each of the dragon bones preserved by the Targaryens, to the point that even the little skulls sitting next to the Iron Throne of the last Targaryen dragon still remain. It's possible that these were, you know, babies still in shells, but God, these would have been picked over a hundred years ago. The Targaryens would have preserved them or collectors would have grabbed them up. There's nothing left here. So here's what I choose to believe. That John has actually got the lower jaw of a cat. He okay. thinks it's a dragon, and Danny's not going to dissuade him of that. The Danny I, knows. Oh, I would love that. I would love to see inside Danny's head. She's going, "Oh, you, you are just so cute. You are so lucky. You're cute." <laughs> but anyway, uh, Danny walks up, and she starts talking about how the Targaryens' reign really ended when they lost their dragons, because that's what made them special. That's what filled people with wonder and awe, and they locked them away and let them grow small and let them die out. And that, um, that is a real selective reading of history. Oh, yeah. Well, how about you guys didn't have a civil war? How about yeah, that? Let's leave out that detail. Let's <laughs> leave out the whole storming of the dragon pit. Let's leave out, you know, years of limited population slowly inbreeding and reducing inside. There's so many other explanations beyond we built a big house and it made them tiny. Well, yeah. And also, like, their reign, my understanding, I think we're going to get some explanation on this in the Fire and Blood book, but... Their rule was starting to be undermined by the dragons destroying shit that wasn't theirs. And that was addressed a little bit earlier in the episode during the walk up to the dragon pit. But 
they had to do something. They couldn't just let the dragons just fly around and kill people. And we saw that with Danny. I mean, Danny locked up her own dragon, which is probably part of the reason she's got a very Ooh. negative view of the dragon pigs, because she eventually became very unfond that she did this. But when her dragons roaming a field started killing children, she locked them up so they would stop killing yeah. children in the realm that she's trying to ensure peace and prosperity and, pop and popular loyalty in. Yeah, no, great parallel there. And then Danny starts talking about how she can't have children, that the dragons will be the only... Well, she can't have human babies, yeah. but the dragons will be the only children she ever has. To which John says, I like this this series of uh, yeah. dialogue. Who told you that? The witch who killed my husband. Has it occurred to you that she might not have been a reliable source of information? I, I love John playing his best lawyer. It, it's great somebody finally pointed this out and said, okay, you're barren, right? Yeah, who told you that? A woman who hated me and resulted in the death of my husband. Consider but here's the, the source. Here's the thing, Jon Snow. You know nothing because... If Danny's not menstruating, she knows. Which is, I will bring this up as a possible topic at Book Nerd Bitching. There is evidence to believe that Danny is either regularly menstruating or bleeding in certain ways at certain times. Uh, ooh, we, that's we, gross. Bleeding uh, in certain ways in certain times. I, I want to be cagey about it. You can be surprised when I go into the topic. But there is evidence uh, to suggest that Danny's fertility is much more up in the air than she possibly believes, or they're certainly representing on the show. Yeah, well, in the books, definitely, but I, I don't think we know in the show. But we don't, we don't, it's just we weird that John would be questioning how fertile she is when Danny could know. I mean, she's it, she's got to know. It, is, the, is this John's efforts at inept flirting? I think so. <laughs> so. Real. John, please, read a book or something. I, I don't well, suggest hitting the lady's fertility as your primarily pickup topic. Are you menstruating, Your Grace? <laughs> <laughs> Let's discuss this in detail. What is your average body fat percentage? Let's go into the possible reasons for this. <laughs> well, anyway, Tyrion struts back, and to the surprise of everybody, Syrian and her, er, uh, Cersei and her Queen's Guard are just behind. And Cersei promises to march her armies north to fight with Jon and Danny. Drops this line: "When the Great War is over, perhaps you'll remember I chose to help." I expect not. <laughs> Yeah. But here's my question for you, Spencer, Spencer, is why I say this line if she wasn't really planning to help? Why put in put a seed of post-war guilt into their mind if she was never going to help at all to begin with? Because I think it makes it more, believing, more believable of where no one can accept that Cersei's just suddenly did a complete 180. There, she has to add an element of this being begrudging, of her really still not trusting them, of her really still not liking this, to make it believable. Because if she just goes 100% positive, someone's going to go ask Tyrion, what the hell did you just tell her that made her just completely turn on a dime on this conversation? So I think this is Cersei in some ways being cagey about, she has to appear a certain degree untrustworthy and unhappy with this, because she is untrustworthy and unhappy with this, and it makes it more believable that she actually intends to follow through, at least for the time being. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a fair reading. Um, but it's funny when she starts into this thing about, well, I will help you af after all. John looks at Tyrion like, what the fuck did you do? Yeah. <laughs> Tyrion has this super proud look on his face. I have been uh, postulating throughout this entire uh, season that Tyrion is actually in love with Danny, And I submit to you the evidence that just last episode, uh, Danny did the mean girl hit on him and said, uh, what I like about you is you're not a hero. Was this Tyrion trying to do something heroic? It's possible. I don't buy into this theory quite as much as you do. I think it's definitely one possible interpretation of some of his reactions and uh, of some of the scenes we're going to see over the course of this episode. Um, so under that theory, yeah, this could be very much Tyrion trying to impress his lady love. One thing I just don't find realistic, though, is 
how is he not swarmed by people who immediately demand every single detail of what the hell just happened and how he's still alive? Yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> as soon as, as soon as uh, Cersei leaves, I'd be like, "All right, give it to me." Yeah, did you give up? Straight. Did you give up a dragon? I mean, what were the terms you just agreed to to make this happen? Did you say that her unborn child would be the heir to the throne? Huh? Question mark. Yeah, I mean, this just—I don't see how he makes it out of this without explaining exactly what occurred and exactly every term and concession he just made. But apparently, he does. Everyone just goes, "Yay, we've got them allied." Let's not ask any follow-up questions and go. All right, drawing an NBA parallel. So, take a knee, Spencer. Uh, taking, uh, taking a drink. See you in a minute. <laughs> so this is the you know the the Tyrion talking to Cersei and Cersei coming out and flipping 180 degrees. I draw the parallel to this NBA offseason when you had Paul George who uh, played for the Thunder last season. His contract was over. He was an unrestricted free agent. Everybody knows he's going to LA. This thing is cooked. We knew it the second he got to OKC. And Russell Westbrook throws a party with Nas, and all of a sudden, Paul George signed a five-year contract with the OKC Thunder. That's my parallel for you. That's my NBA parallel. What Tyrion did was basically a Nas concert in Oklahoma City. Thank you, everybody. You know, I must say, in terms of a set period of time, that is probably the least number of words I've understood of the English language in some time. But I assume it was brilliant. <laughs> it was it was okay. <laughs> I right. have to shoehorn NBA references in every once in a while. He NBA did. pod still coming from Mangum Talks. It's going to happen. I will, I will be I will I will happily listen to it or appear on it for the purpose of appearing ignorant. But you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to get my NBA friends to do it with me. All of them are reluctant, so it might just be me by myself just talking into a microphone about the NBA. But yeah, well, that, whatever. That's, that's the saddest thing you've said recently. Please get someone else in that podcast with you. <laughs> Maybe it'll be you, Spencer. I can try. Uh, all right, then we cut to Winterfell, and Sansa has a scroll. Uh, well, first off, I liked the uh, effect of the Raven flying in mm-hmm. in unsafe conditions and really struggling. Yeah, like I'm such a dork. Like I was like. Oh my god! I hope he makes it. Like, <laughs> like an emotional reaction to this poor bird trying to get through the storm. It's also practically why, when messages were sent in this way back in the back in medieval times, they sent more than one. There were hawks. There were conditions by which your bird would not make it. So yeah, yeah. like it gets hungry or something. Yeah, you know, if it decides to just piece off and make tiny little crowlets, you know, what you gonna do then? Yeah. Well, anyway, um, Sansa gets the scroll. Uh, that presumably was attached to that raven, and she got word that John bent the knee to Daenerys. She does not seem particularly pleased about this, but what seems to frustrate her more than him actually bending the knee is him not counseling with her first. Yeah, I, I, I love John's thought process about this. Okay, I just basically yielded sovereignty of my entire kingdom and submitted to it uh, a dynasty which, in relatively recent terms, was slaughtering their lords and people wholesale. I should let Sansa know. I, I'm betting his message is just, is just something along the lines of, just swore allegiance to Danny, thought you should know, winky face. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. It's like John would be remembered as like the like the shortest reign in okay. like history. I mean, they've been making fun of Torrin Stark for kneeling for the last like 400 years. And he, Thinking you know, that? he was dealing with an entire Targaryen force and multiple massive dragons. John yielded because there was a pretty face, at least from their perspective. She's she's got a large Targaryen force and dragons. Uh, sure, yes, they're nowhere near the north. They're not even threatening to invade the north at the time. Yeah, 
Well, we all know why he did it. I, I think it's great that he did it. Um, it but it, then we, Sansa's talking to Littlefinger, and a little old school Littlefinger here. He he does piece together what Sansa was not able to, which is they say the Dragon Queen is very beautiful. Yeah. And Sansa goes, "What does that have to do with it?" And I'm like, "Sansa, what, like, <laughs> what does that have to do with it?" And he has to piece it together for her. Well, she's young and unmarried. He's young and unmarried, and she goes. Um, you think he wants to marry her? And it's like, yes, Sansa. Like, is, is Sansa, <laughs> you, 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 Sansa apologist. Why, why is she so thick about this? I'm hoping she's playing dumb, but I don't know anything about the writing for any of these scenes involving Sansa or Arya for the entire season. I can't defend any of it. It's possible yeah. she's playing dumb to lure Littlefinger into a trap and make him overconfident because there's leading by the nose and there's literally putting hooks in your nose and dragging you across the room. Yeah, well, a, uh, Sansa finally gets what Littlefinger is saying. Um, they start to talk about Arya because um, Littlefinger says, you know, John was named king in the north. He can be unnamed. And Sansa's uh, comeback to this, the reason she's not on board with it is because Arya wouldn't like it. <laughs> that's when I that's that's when I first started to think, okay, maybe Sansa is playing Littlefinger here yeah. because she's got to have more concerns than just my little sister wouldn't like it. I'm I'm hoping this entire scene is Littlefinger being overconfident and still underestimating what Sansa's capable of because otherwise it doesn't make much sense. It really it really portrays Sansa otherwise as being a lot younger and less experienced than they previously framed her to be. Yeah. Well, anyway, then. Um, uh, Littlefinger goes into this diatribe where he's really leading Sansa down oh, the road. Yeah. Real of Arya, Arya wants to kill you. And he has the line, Sometimes when I try to understand a person's motives, I play a little game. Mm-hmm. I assume the worst. What's the worst reason they could possibly have for saying what they say and doing what they do? I love your Littlefinger accent, by the way. It's pretty damn good. Thanks. <laughs> but really what Littlefinger is saying that Arya wants to kill Sansa so she can be Lady of Winterfell, which... If you have spent two minutes with Arya, <laughs> the last fucking thing she wants to be is the Lady of Winterfell. Like, uh-uh. so ridiculous. And if Sansa wasn't um, playing Littlefinger up till now, this has to be the moment where she goes, man, he's just fucking lying. Yeah. I mean, if she had any sense at all or any understanding of her sister, she knows that Arya wants to be about as close to the concept of Lady as maybe sitting in different continents. There's just <laughs> nothing she wants of that. No, absolutely not. And now there is a a scene that they filmed that they did not put in this episode. Have you heard about this? No, no. Tell me. So after this exchange with Sansa and Littlefinger, and before the next time we see Sansa on the battlements of Winterfell, there was a scene that they filmed that showed Sansa walking down a hallway, knocking on a door, cracking it and saying, Bran, I need your help, and walking in. Okay, so they wanted to make it all the more obvious that... This has been a plan on the part of them to to defeat what's going on with Littlefinger, or that she after this conversation she became very skeptical of Littlefinger and then she went to Bran for help. Maybe, but I think that the reason they cut it is they it would have telegraphed the next scene in Winterfell a little bit too much for their taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I wish they'd left it in though because it it would make more sense. It, it would give us a clearer explanation of what they've been planning with or doing this entire season with respect to Winterfell. Because as we've ranted to no end, so much of it just doesn't seem to make sense. No. Well, then we cut the Dragonstone, um, where it is storming something fierce. And Danny's in the Dragonstone map room planning to travel north. Now, here's a here's an interesting... Like, 
All right, so <laughs> uh, what is this like? Let me let me try to get a, a, a metaphor here for you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like, all right, so do you ever go to like a, a big group vacation when you were like late teens, early 20s with like a bunch of your classmates and it's like boys and girls everywhere? Uh, yeah, I think I want, want a couple of those. Yeah, and did you ever do the thing where like you tried to position yourself to be in the same room with a girl you liked? Like, oh, maybe I'll sleep over there, and you could, well, you could sleep there. Like, you you try, you're trying to telegraph it. Do you know me at all? The answer to that question is no. But move along with your point. I don't think so. I think I think you I think you did it. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly what John is doing in my mind. He's like, well, you should get up there. Well, you take the boat with me. I don't know. <laughs> <It'll>, uh... <laughs> Memory serves Tyrion's not too really happy with this plan, which kind of buys into your theory, maybe. Tyrion doesn't like it. Jorah doesn't like it. And Jorah rightly points out that, well, it's pretty dangerous. I mean, you go up to King's Road and somebody sees your silver hair, then all they have to do is just fire one bolt and they're a hero. They killed the Conqueror. I think it's a very fair point, but I think that, that Danny also is in that beach cottage trying to position herself for the right bedroom <laughs> at the end of the night. And she says, you know what? I'll go north with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna sail to White Harbor uh, with John um, on what we later see as a single boat, which that is fucking insane, considering Euron is has a thousand ships out there. Yeah, a sing a single luxury yacht when it's previously been recognized, particularly in the books, but also to a certain degree, the show is that they're sailing in winter, which is the most dangerous time possible to sail. The North Seas, in particular, are basically a nonstop squall of storms, and they're sending one luxury yacht by itself through the maelstrom when you've got, as you said, an entire hostile fleet just wherever they want to be. Yeah, that was pretty dumb. But anyway, uh, Danny does say that she's going to uh, she's going to she's going to go with John. John leaves, and then we get the last scene in the Dragonstone throne room, which I've talked about on this podcast multiple times as being a particularly beautiful set. And Theon calls John back and asks if he can talk with him. And Theon basically is a little therapy session here with John. Yeah. Um, he is just still wrapped with guilt about what he did. Um, and he, uh, Theon uh, basically says to John, you know, ever since we were a kid, you always knew the right move. You always knew um, the right thing to do. Your moral compass was always strong. And John says, no, I know it might seem like that from the outside, but I've done plenty of things I regret. Theon says, not compared to me, you have it. John says, no, not compared to you. (laughs) But I think John sees that Theon has tried to atone for his actions. He has done what he could um, to say he's sorry. So John says, it's not my place to forgive you for all of it. What I can forgive, I do. And I do think that really lifts Theon's spirits. I think having someone say, it's okay, we forgive you for for any of it. I think it was really, really big for him. What do you think? Uh, we've talked about Alfie Allen being a very good actor on the show for a long time oh, as well. Yeah. And he just sells how truly touched he is by this. I mean, he truly went into this conversation not expecting to be forgiven, not expecting having any degree of peace be between them, but that he just felt like he needed to be able to express his guilt to John. And the fact that John accepts it and actually to a certain degree forgives him and says, let's let bygones be bygones, Theon's just shocked to his core. And again, this just shows what an impressive person and leader John is, is that a person can come to you groveling on their knees, and not only can you accept who accept them for who they are, you can restore them to their feet and give them pride. That's special. And John just does that in spades. Yeah, he does, because then Theon starts to think about the future. And he goes, you know, uh, Yar was the only person who tried to, to 
to um, help me when Ramsey had me as a prisoner, and now they have her. I need to help her. And then John says, why are you still talking to me? Yeah, get going, son. <laughs> and he does. Theon walks outside. Now, this is a very controversial scene in the Game of Thrones community, Spencer, and I'm interested to hear your take on it because I'm not sure me and you have ever dug deep into it, but this whole scene where Theon goes out to the Ironborn, he says, no, you're not going to leave here and go find an island and even rape. We are going to collectively go try to get Yara. She's our leader. We are committed to her. And some unnamed Ironborn guy, um, who is out of shape, by the way, <laughs> says to Theon, fuck that, I'm not doing it. And so Theon and him get in a little fisticuff. Now, it looks like when Theon became a eunuch, he forgot how to fight because yeah. these wild swings that he's doing does not befit the character that he was in season one, two, three, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, train, he's a he, trained soldier. He learned from Sir Roderick Cassell. He knows how to fight, but not here. Yeah, it doesn't make doesn't make any sense why he's just wildly swinging. Well, then finally the guy starts to get tired, which I thought that was a pretty good um, detail to sell you the idea that Theon could actually win this fight. And then oh, oh, this scene where he tries to kick Theon in the balls and it doesn't hurt, and then Theon grins. Oh, I hated that part. And he headbutts him, and Theon gets on top of him, goes in for the kill shot, uh, is successful in that, gets up. Uh, the Ironborn are fickle, clearly, clearly impressed with him. Yeah, yeah, they are. They like the Northern Lords. Yeah, oh, bloody wind veins. Don't put salt in that wound, sir. <laughs> bloody wind veins and he says not for me for yara and they say for yara and theon goes to the salt water to wash himself off what did you think of the scene spencer didn't like it didn't didn't like it didn't like it i and again i i don't like how just fickle with loyalties they portrayed people over the scene i thought the scene was pretty ham-handed i thought the four aria was the four yara was really weak at the end and i thought the continual crotch shots was not only gratuitous I thought in many ways it was insulting to what Theon has gone through, that they can make a joke out of that with this scene. So, yeah, I didn't like any of this. Well, I'm conflicted because I did like it. I like the idea of the scene. That, that, I like... that doesn't compliment the scene. That compliments the idea that the plot progressed in this manner. Yeah, well, I like the character development of Theon. Theon's a character that I still care a lot about yeah. and I'm interested in. And I like to see that he is able to take a leadership position again. Mm-hmm. First time he's done this since before Ramsey had him. Mm-hmm. And I like that he is pushing not for glory for himself, yeah. which he that's exactly what he wanted when we first are introduced to this character. Instead, he just wants to help a family member. But the execution of the scene and the, the length, I mean... Was this really worth the screen time? At this point, we've got, what, six and a half episodes left of the entire series? And we got a five-minute fight with Theon that concludes with him getting kicked in the balls and it not hurting? Like, ugh. Yeah, I, I will agree with you about in terms of plot progression and character growth. It's a very relevant scene. It's very important. But his execution was so ham-handed and just poor, I can't forgive it for that. Yeah. All right. Well, we can move on. I, I, I give that scene a three and a half out of ten, which is... About three points higher than most of the community does. <laughs> Moving on to... Winterfell! It? Sansa, looking beautiful. Oh, look at you, Sansa apologist. It, now I understand. You just tipped your hand, Spencer. It, 
then with her on the walls of Winterfell, this is actually the only, one of the, probably the only scene the entire season between Sansa and Arya I really legitimately... Don't, no, don't try to get intellectual. You just I, tipped your hand. The reason you apologize for Sansa is you think Sophie Turner is gorgeous. No, it's because I actually like her character a lot more in the books than I like her on the show, and I'm willing to let that bleed in. <laughs> anyway, she's on the battlements, and she orders her guards to bring Arya to the Great Room. Oh, yeah, different, sorry, different Sansa and Arya scene. We'll get to that one later. Go on. Um... Yeah, and uh, Arya comes in, and it looks like she's in handcuffs. And all the Northern Lords are there. We see Jan Royce is there. Uh, so you have the Knights of the Vale. They're present. Littlefinger's off to the side, you know, looking sleazy. And Arya basically says, do you really want to do this? Sansa says, it's not what I want. It's what honor demands. And then they conclude the conversation with Arya looking nonplussed and saying, all right, then get on with it. Sansa then lists charges. You've been charged with murder and treason. And then she says, how do you answer, Lord Baelish? Yep. And turns her head to Littlefinger. And the actor who plays Littlefinger has this great jiffable moment where he just like like Wait, flutter blinks. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, the fuck? That, that's exactly what the look on his face was. And he goes, uh, excuse me, Lady Sansa. I'm a bit confused. And, and Sansa's like, what charges confuse you, sir? And then she starts listing off the crimes against Littlefinger. Start with the most simple uh, charge. You murdered Lysa Aaron by throwing her through the moon door. Littlefinger admits to this, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Then Sansa says you conspired to kill John Aaron. Uh, you lied to the Starks, saying that the Lannisters killed John Aaron. You conspired with the Lannisters to betray Ned. And you ordered the hit on Bran. Yeah, you essentially started the War of the Five Kings. And then finally, he, he's like, like, and this, it takes him a while to get to this position, but this is where I would have gotten to. He's like, I deny it. None of you were there. You don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And then Bran jumps in. Google Bran jumps in and says, you hold a knife to his throat. He said, I didn't warn you not to trust me. And the, sh the look that the actor shoots Bran there. Yeah. Is really interesting. And it's it's so realistic because think, of, think if this happened to you, you'd be like, what? How the fuck do you know that, right? Yeah. Um, Littlefinger's just baffled. And then he just goes into straight begging. Anything you want to touch on? Uh, two things. One, Littlefinger shouldn't be that surprised by Bran knowing shit that Bran shouldn't know because they've already had that conversation. Bran already quoted his chaos as a ladder thing, and Littlefinger decided to just kind of stay around town despite Bran having the access to Wikipedia and Google. Um, yeah. Fair so, point. If I was Littlefinger, as soon as he said chaos is a ladder, I would I would be back in the veil. Yeah, I, the veil was lovely this time of year. Uh, send us a card. Maybe you can visit. Not really. Bye. Uh, <laughs> point number two. What a pathetic end to otherwise who's been a significant power player over this. I know they want to portray him as weak. I know they want to you know show him finally defeated for all he's done. I want to. They, they want to trump up all these other characters that are defeating him for it, but. This has been a really interesting character for part of his run that is just reduced to a pathetic quivering mass here at the end, and I find that really disappointing. I do too, um, but I guess what they were showing you is that behind all of this chaos is a ladder, the manipulation, the three-dimensional chess, he at his core is a coward, it, um, and I believe that for the show character. I believe that for the show character, but the problem I have ultimately with this scene is that it works if your character that you're defeating has been a credible threat. And he has not been a credible threat or a significant opponent for years. He has been a side secondary character for, what, three seasons now? 
And so this is meant to be a triumphant defeat of a great adversary. And again, it's the defeating of a person you've relegated to a rather impotent secondary character. So I understand what they're going for with it, but it just shows how much they've written themselves into a corner for somebody that could have been and continued to be a truly great and interesting character. Agreed. I don't like his end, but um, after Littlefinger is baffled, he starts begging Sansa, and Sansa drops the line. Sometimes, when I'm trying to understand a person's yeah, motive, yeah, yeah, yeah. I play a little game. <laughs> and she just, his head just drops, his eyes close. And then he goes, the, the last bit of hope he has, he goes to Ron Yoist and says, um, take me back to the Vale. I'm Lord Protector or, or whatever of the Vale. Take me back. And he just goes, I think not. Yeah, I mean, you know how desperate it is that he's turning to Bronze Young. Bronze Young hates you, dude. He's really happy to see this go down. Well, Littlefinger knows that because it's the last thing he tries yeah. other than just getting on his knees and crying which he does right at the end and Arya comes up and swiftly slits his throat yep and so ends the great conspirer who started the war of the five kings he who we thought was the greatest most successful power player and manipulator of all of westeros possibly only rivaled by Varys himself as said it's a pathetic end to a character that was once in many ways great and i know they're intentionally going for that to a certain degree it's just not what i hoped for that, that, that extends over several seasons for what they've done with him yep r.i.p little finger we cut back to king's landing where jamie is talking to other lannister generals about how they're going to move uh the lannister forces north cersei comes in she has to speak with him alone when the other generals leave she drops this line i always knew you were the stupidest lannister <laughs> Which, when I watched it, I knew exactly what was happening. When yeah. I heard that line, I could have probably written the rest of this scene. Cersei says she has no plans to march the Lannister forces north. Um, her logic is, you know, they have... They, they die by fire. She has dragons. If she can't defeat them, how are we going to help? And Jamie doesn't like this. I think he just likes... Um, for him, he's motivated by honor and what is the right thing to do here. And the right thing to do is for all humans to band together the fight to dead. And Cersei's just not going to have it. Then Cersei reveals that she's actually procured the services of the Golden Company, which will help, uh, presumably, the Lannister forces deal with whatever is left of Danny and John's forces mm -hmm. if they survive. Um, and Jamie goes, well, how are you going to get them here? And she says, well, Euron went to get them. You really think he walked away from me? The chance to marry the queen? Jamie is clearly upset that she plotted with Euron behind his back. And then Cersei accused Jamie of conspiring with Tyrion. Jamie indicates he's going north regardless. And then Cersei claims that that would be treason. No one walks away from me, she says. Didn't you? And this is a scene you alluded to earlier, Spencer. The music starts to play. And the camera pans around Cersei. And I really, I, I really thought Jamie was going to die here. Um, and she even seems to give the mountain the order. She nods her head yes. The mountain starts to unsheath his sword. Jamie looks down, looks up, says, I don't believe you, and walks around the mountain. In yep. scene. How many meanings do you think are behind Jamie's I don't believe you there? At least two. Whew, yeah, it's a, it's a loaded line, definitely. Um, and then we see... Go ahead. No, yeah, let's, let's finish it off and then we'll talk about it. Well, and then, then Cersei kind of follows him a little bit out into the map room and She's affected by this emotionally, obviously, that, that, that he's leaving her, but she's not willing to kill him. She's not willing to do anything. Uh, then we cut to Jamie. He's outside of King's Landing now. He's by himself. Um, it looks like he's going to ride north, and he covers his golden hand, presumably so people wouldn't know who he is along the way. Um, and he sees a, a bit of snow 
coming down. Now, uh, before we get into the scene, uh, Spencer, uh, another little tidbit uh, behind the scenes of the show. Did you know that the scene where Jamie is outside King's Landing, they actually shot two versions of the scene? No, I didn't. They shot the scene that we saw, which is Jamie by himself. And they shot a scene where he has at least part of the Lannister army with him. Hmm. Well, they seem to be clearly indicating with this that Jamie is riding alone. That the Lannister right. army is very much staying with Cersei for whatever she intends. And I think that's the right call. I don't think that the, the men would, would ride off with Jamie um, when Cersei uh, is insisting they not do so. Mm-hmm. But I did think it was interesting that even up through production, they didn't know which way they wanted to go with it. Yeah. Now, uh, what do you think of Cersei's decision-making here? I think in some ways she's telegraphing, well, she's showing her hand too early. If I was her, I would want her army to at least make token motions to be following, to be complying with their treaty, as long as possible. You know, sing mes- send messages that they're being delayed, march up maybe as far as the Riverlands, and then stop there for a little bit. At least show longer into this treaty that you intend to follow it. Because as it stands right now, she's apparently breaching this pretty obviously on day two. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably it would depend on how soon I thought the Golden Company was going to get there. If it was going to take the Golden Company another couple months, then yeah, I would do exactly what you're saying. But if I think they're right around the corner, I'd say, no, I want to keep my forces here so I can consolidate them as quickly as possible. It's interesting how much bigger they made the gold company on the show, too. I mean, she said something like, was, was it 30,000 men that she's bringing? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, and elephants. Gold, gold company in the books is like 10,000 pretty elite troops, but they're really trying to make them like, okay, whatever damage the Lannister army has sustained, it's restored and then some now. Yeah, but I, I still don't. I'm with, I'm with Jamie. I still don't buy. You could have 30,000 gold company soldiers. I don't think that's going to help you if Danny comes in with Drogon. Yeah, I mean, Cersei's essentially betting in some way that Danny's forces are going to be so heavily damaged that even if she's got a dragon or two, she'll have built enough of Quyburn's crossbows at this point that every single elephant will have one on its back. Right, yeah, and that does get it, uh, I didn't cover it in the recap, but that does get addressed where Cersei says, how many how many dragons did you see yeah. at the dragon pit? Jamie says, two. And Jamie says two, and then insinuates, well, heck, the third one could be anywhere. It could Blake. be protecting her fleet. It could be hiding out. But Cersei's not having it. Cersei uh-huh. has sussed out exactly what you were talking about earlier, Spencer. Why would she bring two and not three? Right? Yeah. It's real, real. It should have been a real point of discussion inside Danny's group before they landed with boat dragons. Because Cersei picked up the obvious clue. Jamie, of course, doesn't. But as Cersei said, he apparently is the dumbest Lannister. <laughs> Always knew you the dumbest Lannister. Uh, yeah, so I think that we're done with that scene. We go to Winterfell. Uh, gonna tell you right now, this exchange that we're about to talk about is probably my favorite of the season. Maybe it's it, it's either one or two along with Jamie and Elena. And I'm talking about I, 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 when Sam arrives at Winterfell. That is great. I would offer before we get into this scene that the music that they start to play, the haunting music once the win- once winter has come to the south and is spreading across all of Westeros is gorgeous and beautiful. But moving into what is legitimately one of the best scenes ever. No, yeah, good point by you. That It is. Um, so Sam arrives and um, he knocks on Bran's door and he pokes his head in and Bran says, Sam will tarly. And Sam says, I wasn't sure if you'd remember me. And he says, I remember everything. And Sam gives this like smile like, well, all right. <laughs> yeah. We're having this conversation now, are we? And Bran, to prove his point, says, you helped me get beyond the wall. You're a good man. And in mm-hmm. proper Sam form, he says, thanks. I'm not sure that I am. What happened to you north yeah. of the wall? I became Three-Eyed Raven. Oh. 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love Sam's character so much. And he's so great in this scene. He's amazing. And it's the, and now we have multiple people when he just drops, I became the three-eyed raven saying, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and that is really fair. And I would offer that as a potential for book nerd bitching discussion for what the hell Bran keeps meaning when he says that. Yeah, fair point. Well, Sam says he's come to Winterfell to help John. He says he knows that John is the, the person to help them uh, fight the Night King. And uh, Bran says John is on his way back to Winterfell with Danny. And Sam says, is, did you see that in a vision? And Bran just holds up a scroll. <laughs> I just love, I love the awe in Sam's voice when he asked it. You saw that in a vision? And just how casually Bran just goes, nope. And then Bran, <laughs> yeah, then Bran says, look, he needs to know the truth. And Bran explains that John isn't Ned's son. He's the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. Then Bran says his last name isn't Snow. It's Sand. So can we talk about the levels of wrong that Bran is here? First of all, he's not a bastard, so he's about to learn that. His last name is actually yeah. Targaryen. If he had been a bastard, he still wouldn't be Sand because he grew up in the north. It's not about where you're born, it's where you grow up. He'd also have been a Targaryen bastard, which would have entitled him to their house words for Targaryen bastards, most likely, too. So there's just so many things. <laughs> he's way off here, but Sam says, no. And Though the Targaryens are inconsistent about that, I won't pronounce that point. He tells Bran that Rhaegar and Lyanna were married in a secret ceremony in Dorne. So Sam did notice the importance, or at least he did file that away when he transcribed that and Gilly later dropped the atomic truth bomb and reading it out. Mm-hmm. And Bran takes this and runs with it hard. Yeah, I know. We get another vision. Yeah, Bran questions it, but then Sam says, can you check the tape? Uh, and he does. Yeah. He, he takes it, he, he checks the tape, and he sees a flashback of Rhaegar and Lyanna's wedding. Um... And then you get this scene, uh, this this, this sec- a sequence that I thought was really interesting. It was Bran. He's just talking over various shots. Um, and he does drop the line, Robert's Rebellion was built on a lie. Spencer yeah. does not like this. Yeah. <laughs> Bran's- I'm, also un- I'm also really uncomfortable with how Rhaegar looks exactly like Viserys. He looks exactly like Danny's now dead other brother, which, okay, fine. I, I, they cast an actor that could look like he's a member of the family which makes me really uncomfortable to see Viserys brought back on the screen yeah well I think the books address that right that they do look similar and that Viserys like try to tries to dress like Rhaegar my problem with the Rhaegar casting is that he I'm not buying that that guy could stay in a fight with King Bobby B for 10 seconds well he was a scrawny little guy we don't know how long the fight lasted. We know they met in a river, and it ended with Robert bearing his warhammer and red rubies flying. Well, so we, it could it could have been a very overly described ten seconds. Well, but we do know that, that Robert was injured. That Rhaegar did injure Robert. Do we know that Rhaegar injured Robert, or that Robert was injured in the battle? Because I can picture Robert having been injured beforehand and still just charging in to kill Rhaegar anyway. All right, we're going to have to check the tape, much like Bran. But I think that that the books do make it clear that Rhaegar. uh, But it, you know, you also have unreliable narrator, right? Like it could be. They do. They they, they do describe several characters do describe that Rhaegar was a very skilled swordsman and an incredible jouster. So we do have evidence to believe that Rhaegar was a quite a skilled warrior in his own right. As you say, this guy looks slim. Yeah. Bran says that John is actually the heir to the Iron Throne. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause that. And at the end of this scene, I want to go back to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then you cut to John. He's uh, knocking on Danny's uh, room. He, he does the little, you know, sheepish hesitation before he does so. But he does. She looks at him. Shout out Amelia, Amelia Clark. She clearly knows what John wants here. Uh, yeah. And she waves him in. Um, and you cut to Tyrion, 
who sees John go into Danny's room. Yet more evidence for my theory. He was <laughs> he was watching Danny's room to see if anybody went in, and he does not seem happy now. Uh, or my can, or my theory. Yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I I understand that there could be multiple explanations here, right? It could be that he's just jealous, but it also could be he knows that this further complicates an already complicated political situation. It could also be that he's merely annoyed by the fact that they're banging on a relatively small boat and he wants to sleep tonight. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. <laughs> um, but then um, we cut back to the Tower of Joy. And shout out to the producers of the show. They actually, when they filmed this a couple seasons ago, they actually did film her saying the name, his name, Spencer. Aegon. Come on, man. And it just, Come there's so many on. reasons this is wrong. It, it, no, his name should not be Aegon. That was awful. But anyway, cut back. I mean, it's, Go ahead. It's also awful in that it shows that uh, Rhaegar is a horrible father. He already has a son named Aegon. I know. that. That's why it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, his name should not have been Aegon. There was multiple other avenues they could have gone there. I thought it was cheap, lazy, and I did not like it. We, we talked before. We thought it was going to be Jaehaerys, and that would have been great. Yeah. That would have been a great tie-in. Yep. I, I would have voted for that. But anyway, cut back to the boat sex. Um, Kid Harrington, what squat workout are you doing, bro? <laughs> it, it, it's honestly the most Hollywoody sex scene ever, because it's simultaneously having the appearances of being gratuitous, but showing nothing at all other than Kid Harrington's squatty ass. Ooh, boy. The, the glutinous Maximus on that guy. Mm. Anyway, they're getting it. Uh, Danny seems into it. Uh, everything's great, uh, except that it's uncle, <laughs> it's aunt and nephew. Yeah, but... let's point out that my minor details, really. They're both Targaryens, as we know now. This is very much in the family. And then we cut to Sansa and Arya. They're on the Winterfell Battlements. Totally a makeup scene here. Uh, some of the quotes I like. Um, I never would have survived what you survived from Arya. You would have. You're the strongest person I know, Sansa. I believe that's the nicest thing you ever said to me. Well, yes, don't get used to it. still think you're very strange and annoying. <laughs> but ultimately, what they're doing here is they're making up and they're reminiscing about Ned. And here we are, seven seasons later, and the presence of Eddard Stark is still with us. And we get the quote. Reigning true. Get the quote from him. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Potential line of the episode there. And, and ending with, I miss him. Me too. Yeah. Uh, this... This was the scene I wanted between the two of them all season that they've been denying me. And it just raises questions. Is this literally them apologizing for all of the season? The two characters apologizing to each other for all the season? Or is them finally letting all of their bluster fall to the wayside now that Littlefinger is gone? Either way, I love it. It's a great scene between the two of them, and it's everything I hoped this season would be between the two of them. And it's what I think two siblings would do if they really, really love their dad and their dad died young. I think they would have this conversation probably every fucking Thanksgiving, right? Like, I mean, this is a this is a very human moment here. I love that the presence of Eddard is still very much in the show. Um, but let's go back to where I, I previously put the bookend. So Bran is saying that John is the heir to the Iron Throne. Spencer, your take? Uh, yeah, yeah. Quite possibly. I mean, if he is a legitimate, not by birth Targaryen, if he's no bastard by any sense of the word, then the Targaryens follow strict primogeniture. And so the fact that there is a male Targaryen heir around, particularly since he is the heir of the heir, so he would take he would, he would take before Danny anyway in that regard. Um, yeah, 
he he has the superior claim without question. After the Targaryen Civil War, the fact that there's a male anywhere in the in the dynamic of Targaryens means he takes first. And even if that wasn't the case, even if they were following standard Westerosi succession, he is a male who is the heir of the of the prince of, of the prince that was promised, the heir to the throne. He takes before Danny, hands down. Well, so here's my take. You know how I feel about the Baratheon boys. Shout out Baratheons. Yeah. I still. I don't. I would not revert back to okay. Who is the next Targaryen? I would say who is the next in line in the Baratheon line, and the answer to that is still John. <laughs> no. Nah, well, yes. Good point. Yes. I don't think. I don't think. Okay. Dan, John has that ace. Does, does have that arrow in his quiver too? Forgot about that detail. Yep. Because there is uh, the Targath. This is the whole uh, foundation for having Robert rule. Is that there was um, the, the Targaryen line is it. it, it Decades back, and you can provide more details about this than I can, Spencer, but there has Targaryen blood in it. And so the Baratheon line is dead, so you'd have to revert back to, well, who's the, the closest living relative, male heir, of course, and it's John. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, ori- the original Baratheon, Oris Baratheon, was Aegon the Conqueror's half-brother. Bastard half-brother, most likely. Uh, so the, the connections between the family go back a long damn way, but Robert Baratheon's, I think it was his grandmother, uh, was, was, was married into the Targaryen family, or a Targaryen married into their family at that point. So yeah, they're pretty closely connected, even in recent times. So you can be team Targaryen or team Baratheon. Either way, John is the heir. I, I think that Bran does get that right. Me and you have talked about it before. I do not think this will be a serious point of contention between Danny and John. Uh, you seem to think eh. it could be. I seem to think it could be because the show is trying to find whatever drama it possibly can between characters. And oh, shit on the much, show. I mean, I, give me an opportunity. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> D- Danny has built her entire life upon this quest. And John continually just kind of waltzes into being in charge of the room. So I think in some ways she's going to resent this if people immediately start rallying behind him. The problem with that theory, of course, is that you know John does not want this. No, no. And I think he's going to be legitimately bummed to hear this because of how close he felt with Ned. I think he's. I think the conversation we're going to hear out of him is, is that my father is the one who raised me. My father is the one who taught me the lessons by which guide my life. My father was Ned Stark. I think he's going to say something. Ooh, Spencer, are you writing season eight? That was good. That that's that's going to be the John response is that Eddard Stark was the man who taught me the values by which govern my life, but which put me in the position I am by which the legions of people you see here with me follow me. I know nothing of this Targaryen you say I came from. Something along something along those lines. I like it, Spencer. You're all over the board today. You're dominating me. I'm trying. Just dunk, dunking on me left and right. All right, let's cut to the last scene of the episode. We're at Eastwatch. Tormund and Beric are at the top. Uh, they have a little exchange, which I like, as being a person who is deathly afraid of heights. It's a long way down. Yeah, the crows keep telling me I'll get used to it. <laughs> That's, that would totally be me in that situation. I would be terrified of it. Anyway, in, in a parallel, I think, to Watchers on the Wall, we see a similar sort of emergence of an army coming to the wall as we do when the wildlings uh, attack Castle Black. Mm-hmm. see a couple of stragglers here and there and then more and more and the army of the dead emerges yeah a couple things to point out here one it seems like they have a really good number of giants they do yeah, an impressive number of giants that are backing up this force that's going to be a problem it all looks it also looks like all of them have weapons 
Uh, yeah, which is probably unrealistic, but yes, they do appear to be all pretty pretty effectively armed. With that number of giants, does he even need the what he uses to blow down the wall here? I mean, we saw one really pissed off giant was enough to lift up the door previously that uh, connected you to uh, Castle Black. If he's got that many undead ones, which are going to shrug off whatever you throw at them, does he need a dragon to blow down the wall here? I think that the the Night King. Um... And we talked about this theory. I do think that some level of the nonsense that went on in the previous episode was planned by the Night King in order to get a dragon. I think he needs a dragon yeah. for two reasons. One, he needs to blow down the wall. <coughs> Excuse me. Two, he needs to be able to fight Danny's dragons. Yeah. And I, I do think we're going to get some shout-out Dance of the Dragons um, type fight here between Viserion and either Rhaegal or Drogon. Yeah, I think very much so. I think um, there is going to be a point of when Danny only has um, Drogon left. I think she's going to lose her other dragon to this dragon in some way, and then the two of them are going to square off. Question um, for you. I agree with Question you. for you. When Rhaegal goes down, is John going to be riding him? I uh, hmm, don't know. Yeah, they've possibly been setting that up for a while i think that could be how it's revealed maybe to danny that there's something more targaryen about him because we already saw that he that drogon responded well to him if he actually a dragon invites him to ride on its back we've got a whole different new story but i agree with you that the, the night king taking down the wall if nothing else just serves for efficiency purposes because he's got a big army it's going to take a while to go through a tiny door so bringing down yeah. the wall just helps everything there yeah no i mean i've got um my prediction for season eight uh, and we'll do a predictions episode, by the way, for season eight. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and spoil something. As I think that John will ride Rhaegal, and I think that Viserion will kill Rhaegal, and John will be on it, and that is how John's going to die. And I think that what we're going to be left with hmm. is Danny ruling, and she's pregnant with John's child. Do you think the show has the guts to kill off John at this point, or you think the show is inevitably going to try to do give us a happy ending? Oh, man, if it, 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 <laughs> Spencer, you made me so mad, I just can't even talk. If it ends with John and Danny happily ruling Westeros, I'm going to kick my television. Yeah, it, that works for Lord of the Rings because they were setting it up in that direction. If they go in that route, it will be such a swerve between the bittersweet ending this show has been setting up, the books and show have been setting up for years. Yeah, it'll, cre it'll create some goodwill for George R. R. Martin, right? We'll all be like, okay, well, that wasn't the real ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they they got to make this ending hurt. They've got to, they've been saving us a few deaths over the course of this last season that need to pile up in this upcoming season. Well, this is meant to be traumatic. This is meant to be the apocalyptic end of the world. It's got to hurt us. It's got to be. It, it, it's got to be the, whatever people are left are picking up the pieces, not something clean. Well, you know that I always have the production spoilers. So, uh, word is that when they did the first table read of the last episode of the show, that multiple main characters, so that the primary actors that we know were sobbing. Good sign. Exactly right. I, I liked to hear that. But anyway, getting back to the show, um, you hear a dragon roar, and here comes White Walker Viserion. <laughs> Viserion seems to be flying much, much faster than the other dragons can fly. Apparently being undead gives you an afterburner. I didn't know that was the case. Because when Viserion went down and the Night King uh, reanimated him, I thought, well, that's great, but Drogon can beat Viserion. I mean, he's probably twice the size. But not if he can fly that fast. And he's got blue flame, which the showrunners have explained, that's not meant to be ice. That's actually flame that is so hot it's blue. Apparently being white, it, it, we talked about this last episode. Are we, are we suggesting that he's been zombified or white walker-fied? White walker-fied. Okay. 
So although, being White Walker. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, although there is some evidence against that, because if you look while Viserion is hitting the wall with the blue flame, it looks like his his wings have decomposed a bit. There's holes in them. Yeah, yeah he, he is. I mean, he was clearly dead. We've never seen somebody be White Walker fight from a dead corpse. And as you said, it looks like an undead dragon. He has got pieces coming out of him. His wings are... A tattered mess at this point. So if that's but the case, then there's a shelf life, right? He'll eventually just be just skeleton. It's, I suppose, but if he's just a skeleton, can he produce fire? We we don't know how this works. I don't know if the showrunners know how this works. We'll we'll see. Yeah, and then yeah, but I alluded to it. Viserion starts to breathe fire on the wall. Very long period of spitting fire here. Question for you is: Can Danny's dragons do that? Because I thought they breathe fire. So they can do bolts of it. And we've seen Danny's dragons do bolts of it. We've never seen that long, prolonged burst of fire like Viserion does here. The closest we've seen, and I agree it goes on for nowhere near the same amount of time, is Drogon earlier in the season when he goes the length of the Lannister army blowing up all of their um, their wagons. That lasts for like 10 seconds or so, but it's not like the 35 seconds of sustained flame that's going on here. Right. It's like, I mean, you can, me and you can sit here and go, we can exhale a breath for 10 seconds. I cannot exhale a breath for as long as Viserion was doing it. So that further suggests to me that Viserion reanimated with the Night King is stronger than he once was. I would agree. I think all evidence supports that theory. Well, the wall goes down. Um, Shout out to Tormund, who knew to run the length of the wall, as opposed to trying to go down those ridiculous stairs. (laughs) And so, as a result, he... He and Beric just make it. Yeah, no, that's a little convenient. But I, I when I did, question for you: When you first watched this, did you take it that they survived? I did. Yeah, I think we, okay, we argued I, about I that at the time that. when we watched it live. Yeah, yeah, we did because I, I thought they were dead. But anyway, they are not, uh, and the show's made that perfectly clear. They are, they are alive, um, or at least they survived that scene. Um, and then the wall goes down. And the army starts to march through it. Now, I know the show likes big round numbers, right? They don't get the, they're not details. They're not details. But Danny's estimate of 100,000 uh, troops to me seems to be uh, conservative at best. It looks like way more than 100,000. Essentially, at this point, it's been, I think we've implied that they can basically resurrect somebody that's been dead for any length of time, possibly. So essentially, they've got he's resurrecting every corpse that he can find or every person that's ever been buried in the far north. Who knows how many thousands are upon thousands? Danny, they got a tiny glimpse and said, eh, 100,000-ish, maybe. This looks leagues beyond that. Okay, you're a betting man, right? We all know that. You're a big, big gambler. Would you bet on the Dothraki army or the undead army no dragons, no nothing else, just 1v1. Just Dothraki versus Undead. Yep. Undead. <sighs> Not it, The Dothraki army depends to a certain degree on people running away, breaking up into formation, out of formation, and being able to ride them down. They don't re- they're not really built for, let's literally hack you apart going slowly through your formation. Oh. The Undead aren't going to break and run. You just have to chop them until until there's nothing left to chop. That's a good point. I mean, you know, I ride or die with the Dothraki. I think that they're the strongest army that Westeros has. But you you might be right for the fighting style of the undead. Maybe the Unsullied are better. I very much believe the Unsullied. They are a, a grinder of a force. They are the anvil that something breaks atop of. They're the kind of force you want holding the line as the undead just run them continually break themselves upon you. 
this is not a force that's going to respond to psychological tactics that make you run away or something so you can cut them down or run away as they're, as they're going. You just have to churn, you just have to keep on breaking them apart. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, wall goes down, the army marches through. Thing to point out here is that we see this scene through Bran, which I think is an important detail because Bran knows that the wall fell. And so when John gets off the boat and he's like, hey, here's my new girlfriend, Bran can drop the T-bomb. Yeah, but they're coming because uh, that's the intel. So I like that little detail uh, that Bran knows. So that way we can start season eight, episode one with everybody on the same page. The fight is coming very, very soon. Question for you, Spencer. We know the show can get tropey. We know the show can get Hollywood, right? But from what we know, don't think about what the show is going to do, but from what we know, Army of the Dead versus John and Danny, who you got? Now that there's an undead, or a dragon on the side of the Night King, yep. I'm betting Army of the Dead. Yeah, I would too. And you know, you know, he's not going to win. I mean, they're not going to do that with the show. Although that would be fucking amazing if it would <laughs> ended with just humanity ends. <laughs> that would be an awesome, unexpected ending. Is seeing Cersei now having to plot with the fact that the Night King has won. What's she going to do? <laughs> okay, well, that's the end of the recap, Spencer. Anything you want to add? Uh, one. Little fan theory that somebody take some people have taken pictures of. I'm curious of your of your thoughts on when we see the hordes of undead crossing through the splintered remains of the wall. Several posts online have said that they, as they're crossing through the various out- outcroppings, form the head of a wolf. Did you see that? And follow up if you did or if you didn't. What are they implying with that? If that is the case. Okay. A just. Let's get this out of the way. I don't like that you just pointed out something I haven't heard about. Um, so that that kind of hurts my pride a little bit. No, I've not heard that, and I didn't look for it, so I'd have to go back and look. If I did see it, I doubt that I would read much into it. I mean, I did see it, and it does look kind of like a distinct wolf head, but you know, I'm being told to look for it so I can see it that way. Um, it could just be a, you know the CGI team having fun. Let's just see if we can make them theorize about some senseless shit for the next year, next year or two until we get back to them. Or it could buy into the whole Night King, by all theories, was originally a Stark. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, so that's the end of the season. That's the end of the recap for the whole season. Um, mm-hmm. If you're wondering what's the status of season eight, here's what we know. We know that uh, the head of HBO programming uh, said that uh, Game of Thrones season eight would come back in the first part of 2019. At the time, people thought it was around April, but then we've gotten some leaks from HBO saying that some of the post-production work is actually taking longer than they expected, and it might actually bleed into the summer. Now, Spencer, if it bleeds into the summer, let's say there's a mid-June release date, mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen, right? What's going to happen? There is going to be a new episode of Season 8 Game of Thrones on the weekend of Con of Thrones. I know. That's going to be insane. Oh, good time to be alive. Would that be amazing? I would totally take that Monday off. You, you got to stay. Would, oh, they gonna, would they be able to find a way to do a live taping? I don't think HBO would let them do it. No, HBO's let cons do it before. Dragon oh. Dragon Con did it during um, season six. Oh, wh- which week episode? We have to do the timing of that. But that's a if that's a later episode of the season. Oh dear God, put me in that room to watch that live with all the most uber of fans. I know, like nothing. I, I would never want it to be delayed, right? I want to see it as soon as I can. So the April release date sounded good to me. But if it's April or mid June and we get that experience at Con of Thrones, OMG. 
if it's later in the year, wouldn't that actually move them out of contention for the twenty nine to the twenty nineteen Emmys? It, wouldn't that would. kind of put them in the twenty? That's another consideration I'm sure they're thinking about. Yeah, twenty twenty, uh, and then that would be they would probably be going up against Westworld season three at that point. Probably, yeah. But I think based on the results this season, they're confident in their in their chances. Yeah, true. All right, that ends the recap. Uh, let's go to best line of the episode. We've got options. I've got I've got the, I just controlled F the word quote in my notes, and I've got thirteen. Man, you can't bring in the heater today. All right, uh, I'll get started. Jamie Lannister. Maybe it is all just cocks in the end. Oh, that's a wonderful philosophical point to start us off with. <laughs> we could have fun debating that one. That's a great quote for a women's studies class to go, to analyze to no end. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, uh, response. Uh, not as good, but I, th- I thought it was still a nice line between Tyrion and Podrick. Didn't think I'd see you again, my lord. Supporting the enemy, no less. Hard to blame you. Tyrion's response. Uh, Cersei will anyway. And my next is the very next line of dialogue. Come on, you can suck his magic cock later. Great line, yes. Uh, Follow-up, Hound versus the Mountain. Uh, Remember me? Yeah, you do. You're even fucking uglier than I am now. What did they do to you? That doesn't matter. That's not not how it ends for you. You know who's coming for you. You always know. Great line. Love that the Hound interrupts the conference to say it. (laughs) Agreed. Cersei and Danny, we've been here for some time. My apologies. Baller move by Danny there. I liked it. Uh, Tyrion's response to Euron. I think we, I think we ought to begin with larger concerns, Euron. Then why are you talking? You're the smallest concern here. Remember when we discussed dwarf jokes? His wasn't even good. He explained it in the end. Never explained it. It ruins it. <laughs> I did like that one. That was a. Uh, and then then Sir, then Euron got mean, very mean. Yeah. Very um, mean. This one, which you know, probably has to be the favorite. There's only one wall that matters. The Great Wall. And it is here. Yeah, and I would continue from that for one of the next lines that John says when he's uh, def- when he is answering Cersei's uh, proposal for him remaining neutral in the coming war. I am an honest man, or I try to be. That is what I cannot. That's why I cannot give you what you ask. I cannot serve two queens, and I've already pledged myself to Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen. Which, just for the level, it rattles Cersei. It tickles me. Yeah, and then the Cersei counter. Then there's nothing left to discuss. Have fun dealing yeah. with the dead. We'll deal with whatever's left of you. And, and following up from that, this is a great exchange we're doing here, is both a line from John and Tyrion's response to it. I'm not going to swear an oath I can't uphold. Talk about my father if you want. Tell me that's the attitude that got him killed. But when enough people make false promises, words stop meaning anything. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies. And lies won't help us in this fight. To which Tyrion has the best response possible. That is indeed a problem. The more immediate problem is that we're fucked. <laughs> Yep. All right. Moving on. Um, For purely marketing purposes, I'm going to say Daenerys didn't want to negotiate. She wanted to bring you fire and blood. Very much. Marketing line. Uh, Tyrion to Jaime. I'm about to step into a room with the most murderous woman in the world who has already tried to kill me twice that I know of. Who's an idiot? I suppose we should say goodbye one idiot to another. Very, very good. Um, Next one for me. I've got... Who told you that? To which you killed my husband. It's occurred to you she might not have been a reliable source of information. <laughs> that is a good line from John. One I love. And this... I, I put this scene forward as just some of the best acting the show has done of just locking uh, Lena Headley and, uh, and uh, Peter Dinklage in a room. Is Tyrion's line to Cersei, 
If it weren't for me, you'd have a mother. If it weren't for me, you'd have a father. If it weren't for me, you'd have two beautiful children. I've thought about killing you more times than I can count. Do it. Say the word. Yeah, that one's strong. Um, moving to Winterfell. Um, sometimes when I try to understand a person's motive, I God, play a little game. Yeah. I assume the worst. What's the worst reason they could possibly have for saying what they say, doing what they do? Fine. Yes, it's practically the last line, and it's so indicative of what they've done with Littlefinger. So, yep. yeah, good one up there. Uh, uh, Sam and Bran. There's two great lines here, so divide this up if you want, or take it as one. Oh, no, let's, let's divide it up. Uh, what happened to you beyond the wall? I became the Three-Eyed Raven. Oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back a little bit, John and Theon. It's not my place no. to forgive you for all of it, but what I can forgive, I do. And I'm going to tell you, that's not going to be line of the episode, but it mm -hmm. is my favorite line of the episode. It's strong. It's a very emotional, powerful moment. And again, I love what it's what it shows throughout the response to it, and what it shows that John was willing to do it. It's great for their character development. Um, another Tyrion, uh, another Sam and Bran line. Uh, he's on his way back to Winterfell with Daenerys Targaryen. You saw this in a vision. <laughs> And he just lifts the scroll to which Sam responds, oh. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I'm going to not choose any more of Bran's monologue there. Um, I'm going to go to when the snows fall and the white winds blow. Yeah. The lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Yeah, that one. I Yeah. I would, I'm gonna, I would put that up as the best line of the episode just because, again, how much it just affects me whenever Ned is referenced. You do love yourself some Ned. Yep, yeah, and that's actually, that was my last one. I'm out. It was my last one as well. All right. Best line of the episode, season seven, episode seven, titled The Dragon and the Wolf, is when the snows fall, the white winds oh. blow, the long wolf dies, the pack survives. It's a great scene. It's uh, That's a great one. It, it, it deserves it. it. It's such a great scene between Sansa and Arya, in large part just because of how much I've hated their storyline over the course of the rest of this season. So having the two of them together, quoting Ned up on the battle, one's beautifully shot scene. It, perfect. Love it. Yep, me too. We are in agreement there. Uh, good job by us, Spencer. We've got through most of okay. the episode. Let's cut to Bugner and Bitchy. Okay, and for you, for this, which is our last episode of this season, I give you five topics to pick between. Whew. All right, bring them on. All right, our five topics are, one, the dragon pit, its origins, its fall, and whether Danny is correct that it was, in many ways, the beginning of the end of House Targaryen, and also tying into what is known as the Grand Meister Conspiracy. Option number two, taking the dead to King's Landing. This, uh, taking zombies to King's Landing has happened before, and Tyrion played a key role in both times that it occurred, though entirely in different ways. Option number three, Danny and fertility. Uh... This is something that Danny is absolutely certain about, that John kind of pokes a few holes in, and which is, in the books, an incredibly open point that suggests a possible conspiracy with respect to her fertility to possibly keep her infertile. Option number four, the revolt against the Mad King. Was the kidnapping of Lyanna indeed the, the reason by which this started? Was the war founded on that lie, or were there really... In actuality, a lot of other different factors at play that in some ways made the revolt against the Mad King inevitable, regardless of what Rhaegar and Lyanna had done. And option number five, the Green Seers. We've heard Bran continually refer to the Three-Eyed Raven. 
What does that actually mean? Who were the green seers and what do what do we know about them from the past? Give us hints of what brand may be capable of in the future as truly the last of the green seers. Whew. Can I pick all five? Those are strong. Um, if you want to, you can, but we know it is. We've how long have we been recording now? Uh, we're we're actually running a little uh, less than last episode. We're at like an hour and maybe forty five minutes, something like that. Okay, not bad. Yeah, not bad. Uh, I'm gonna go well, with pick as many as you want, sir. I'm gonna do three. I'm gonna, I'm okay. gonna keep it between the rails. Let's do Dragon Pit. Good choice. Revolt against the Mad King. Mm-hmm. And uh, Westerosi Green Scene, aka Googling. I think most folks out there are a little confused about that topic. Yeah, and how could I could have guessed that you wouldn't have picked Danny on fertility? Oh well, maybe for next time. Um, all right, uh, well, let's she, start. There's, there's nothing to discuss there. In the Dance of Dragons, she has a period. So, uh, does she have a period, or does she actually have a miscarriage? And there is an interesting debate there, in large part based on the taste of the berries that she consumes right before it happens. Do we, an interesting theory, do we, which we will not be talking about today. Do we know an OBGYN? Uh, in, uh, our only OBGYN <laughs> that we saw was the same witch that put the curse on her. So the no. OBGYNs in, in, the, in the history of uh, Song of Ice and Fire are not necessarily of the same registered level of quality we've come to expect. I meant in real life, Spencer. We could go to go to the expert. Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking <laughs> in the text. Oh. Uh, we could... I didn't Nita do it? Do it? Did both Nita and Joey do a transition with that? We could we could ask them. I think all doctors have to to, to kind of pass through every once in a while. But anyway, all right, sure. let's get to the three. I'm really hyped about the Dragon Pit, and also another produ- production spoiler for season eight. If you don't want to hear it, skip the next five seconds. All right, skip the next five seconds, starting should, now. Should should I skip? What is this? Hold on, starting now. Okay, they do shoot shoot another scene at the Dragon Pit. Okay, interesting. We're back. That that is interesting. Okay, uh, two things about the Dragon Pit. The drag, well, a few things about the Dragon Pit that we saw in the show. The Dragon Pit that we see in the show is indeed a pretty set. I think you would agree that it is very scenic. It does have a certain degree of eminence and power behind it. Gorgeous. Uh, would, that, would that be your impression of what you saw of it on the show? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought it was great. There, it is. It appears very much that it was filmed in a uh, an old Roman amphitheater, probably about two thousand years old or whatever else that they're filming, and had to get specialty permission as they had for a lot of their specialty sets. There's two points of contention I have with the uh, set they picked um, that I want you to keep track as I start ranting. Okay, the dragon ship uh, was actually set in the ruins of Italica. Ruins of Italica. Where's that? Uh, give me just a second. <laughs> Complete your Googling, sir. <laughs> I think it's in Italy, right? Let me see. I'll make sure. Yeah, the Romans owned all the Mediterranean, so it could be any number of places. Uh, Spain. Spain. That makes sense. Okay. Two things to remember. A, the ruins of the Dragon Pit in the world of Westeros are not 2,000 years old. They're probably about 150 years old. Point number two, and the more important thing to bring up here, they're fucking massive! The Dragon Pit is one of the largest structures in the world, in large part because, as you might guess from the name, it was built to accommodate dragons! The entranceway to the set they designed, and again, I like the set that they picked. It has a a nice image and set for the uh, meeting they're going to have occur. What would you say? Four or five people walking abreast can maybe make it down the main pathway? From yeah, what we I know mean, about the... I, mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel bad for him here because 
where could they film that would be realistic for the size of the dragon pit as it's described? they would have a hard time with it. They'd have to rent out a stadium, uh, you know, a major NFL sports stadium, and then make it look bigger. I mean, this structure is one of the largest things that's been built in the history of the world. This thing where the main pathway by which that leads to these massive iron doors behind which the dragons are kept is described as being wide enough that 30 mounted knights in full kit, riding war horses, could march side by side into it with having room still on the sides by which people could pass. That's how colossal this thing is. It was built in the early part of the Targaryen reign of where the third Targaryen king, Magor the Cruel, who very much in all ways earned his name, uh, was in a war with the Faith Militant, the, in ar- arguably the same people that uh, Cersei was squaring with in terms of the Faith of the Seven, putting soldiers in the field to fight a religious war. Uh, in his case, it was the original incarnation, which was a powerful political force in its own right when the Targaryens first took over. The Faith Militant had many objections to the Targaryens, um, con- including in large part their continued practicing of incest. Maker the Cruel's response to their complaints was to jump on Balerion the Black Dread, the largest dragon ever, to fly over to what later became known as Rainus Hill, to the Sept of Remembrance that was currently set on this, which is again the towering hill that's very much visible throughout all of the city of King's Landing, and have his guards lock the doors and burn it to the ground with everybody inside, killing thousands. You know, Cersei probably took some inspiration from that when she chose to do essentially the same thing in the last season. Upon the ashes of his fallen enemies, he decided, you know what, would have the best, you know, statement, symbolic statement, I'm going to build a home for my dragons upon their charred bones. And so he builds, again, easily one of the top three largest structures in King's Landing, if not one of the largest structures in the world, to house the Targaryen dragons. Danny, uh, he has to import people as far away as Essos to get the necessary workers, laborers, and designers to build this thing. It takes the resources of the realm, which only further puts the realm into the uh, the, and into the utter turmoil that was the Faith Melaton uprising. It didn't even end until after Mega the Cruel had died and his successor, Jaehaerys the Conciliator, came into power and put the war to an end. Uh, Danny kind of flippantly refers to this structure as, you know, the downfall of our house. This was the beginning of the end. If that's true, the beginning of the end of House Targaryen was in their third king when two of the original three largest dragons in history were still alive. This structure was so massive that at the point of the Targaryen Civil War, a hundred and so years later after Maegar the Cruel, they had 20-plus named dragons that we know about, and the building could still accommodate them. The scale of this thing is hard to imagine. Now, That Civil War? That Civil War? I said Mm -hmm. that Civil War that you're referencing, just for folks out there, is called the Dance of the Dragons. Indeed, and it was, in many ways, what really brought about the utter weakening and destruction of the house, and it's one thing we can go into. The theory that Danny offers is not only unique to her. It's rather common. She actually gets it from Barristan Selmy, uh, before she knows that it's Barristan Selmy that she's talking to, that the Meisters put forward this theory that if you put dragons in a confined space with a dome over their head, that's a big feature of the dragon pit, is that it is an enclosed, domed structure by which all where the dragons are kept then they never can grow as large. They essentially grow to fit the space that they're in. And the backup to that theory is is that after the original Targaryen dragons, the most massive there ever were, 
on average, the Targaryen dragons thereafter got continually smaller. So that by the time of the uh, last dragons, um, about 100 years or so before the start of this series, they weren't much bigger than small dogs. That I think uh, Tywin at one point rather flippantly refers to its skull as being roughly the size of an apple. Now, this is the theory the Meisters have put forward based on this evidence, but it's only one of many possible explanations for what did this. As I said, the dragon pit was colossal. The, the Targaryens themselves were very familiar with dragons. They'd been raising dragons for hundreds of years before they ever came to Westeros. They were the last of the great, Targa Targaryen, uh, great uh, Valerian dragon lords. So presumably, they would know that if we put them in a dome, they're going to get tiny, and that maybe isn't something we should do. So odds are that they at least considered that a reasonable risk or didn't think that that was a likely outcome. In terms of the size of the Targaryen dragons, even during the, um, the Dance of Dragons themselves, there were still dragons that were pretty damn large. Some of them weren't as big as the, as the, the original ones that Aegon the Conqueror brought, but Aegon the Conqueror's dragons, particularly Balerion the Black Dread, were old enough that they were from Valeria. These were ancient upon ancient dragons. They'd had hundreds of years of history attached behind them to get as big as they did. The dragons that came after that only had a pretty limited period of time in which to grow and prosper before most of them were then killed off. And what was, as we will discuss, the Dance of Dragons, the Great Targaryen Civil War, what truly weakened their house beyond all compare, as the Greens and the Blacks squared off against each other. During that conflict, almost all of the Targaryen dragons died. Their house was permanently weakened. The few dragons that remained were notably described as being heavily injured, barely tamed, or uh, in a state and condition by which the books don't give as much detail to even know whether they were even half alive. Yet, right, we're getting fire and blood. Yet, we're getting fire and blood. We'll hear more about what, what occurred there. Um, but it's worth noting that the, tar the dragon population that could persist, that could make new dragons, was pretty damn crappy. And as time has gone on, the Valerians, uh, the Targaryens' means of making new dragons from the, the collection of eggs that they've had were getting harder and harder and harder. Possibly tied into the fact that much of the magic necessary, whatever else, to make these eggs come to life was fading with the ruins and fall of Valeria itself. One, I don't know, this is probably not what she intends to reference, but one way in which the Dragon Pit did help in the fall of the House Targaryen was the fact that since a lot of the dragons were stored there, while it became a symbol of their power, while it became an easy place to control them, to prevent them from running afield and eating random peasants, it also made it that if any large force ever wanted to attack and destroy the base of Targaryen power in a single fell swoop, it was right there for the hitting. And so when the great uh, riots of King's Landing occurred during the Dance of Dragons, tens of thousands of angry peasants and commoners and people of Flea Bottom, all rallying behind this kind of prophet-like figure just simply named the Shepherd, became convinced that dragons were demons, that they needed to be destroyed, and that their deaths were a worthy effort to bring that goal about. And so they decided, armed with whatever they had, to just storm the dragon pit. Which, even at that time, during the worst part of the Targaryen Revolt, when many dragons had already been killed, housed five full-size dragons locked up inside it. They go on in there, and since the dragons are locked in, since they can't fly out of this domed roof, and since they're, all of these peasants are suicidally determined to kill the dragons no matter the cost, thousands of peasants die, but five trapped dragons die with them. Which essentially, in one fell swoop, ends the Targaryen Civil War, kills off almost all of the remaining dragons in the world, and, I'd say accidentally, 
suggests that Danny may have a certain basis in fact. Now, question for you. I was off. What you say? Question for you. What you got? Of of all of the scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire that we have not seen on this on the screen, right? We haven't seen in A Game of Thrones. Where does the storming of the dragon pit rank for you? Because for me, it's pretty really, high. Really fucking high. Oh, God, that would be a, an amazing scene. I mean, we don't really have a concept for that kind of suicidal determination on the show. Every time we see a dragon on the show, it wins. It unleashes incredible destruction. The few exceptions that are meant to be incredibly shocking. Seeing thousands of peasants hacking at them with cleavers, just desperately trying to tear into them as they're getting cut down by the swaves. A full, adult, proper Targaryen dragon fire. Oh, that would be gorgeous to watch and yeah, see. Yeah, shout out Gurm because I, <laughs> I love reading about this scene. I really hope we get to see it on the screen somewhere at some point because it's it's one of the better scenes that I think uh, Martin has painted. But anyway, sorry to interject. Go ahead. Now, last thing I'll say about the whole dragon pit is that, again, it is the very, it is a popular theory, even within Westeros and even in the fandom, as for why the dragons started to get tiny. Some people reference it again as the, the end of the house. But there is a theory out there called the Grand Meister Conspiracy, which strongly suggests that this was merely the Meister's cover for their own active efforts to bring about the end of magic in the world. We know that dragons are very much associated with building magic, with creating magic, the point that even the pyromancers ask when they find it easier to make wildfire, you think there's dragons back in the world? Because this whole magic thing is getting easy again. We know that Meisters view magic as very much an anathema to them, to the point that even the ring that they have on their chains associated with learning magic is meant to be a lesson in humility that magic isn't possible and that you shouldn't waste time exploring it. We have one figure, the Archmeister Marwyn the Mage, who, in wonderfully classic George R. R. Martin fashion, essentially throws out a theory that puts everything on its head as he's leaving the room to go to a different continent so that no one can ask him any more questions anymore. Is that essentially, as he's leaving the Citadel, he kind of just casually says to Sam as he's going, yeah, I, gotta go t- I have to go talk to uh, Daenerys Targaryen, go see her dragons. Oh, yeah, and, you know, us Meisters have been for the last few hundreds of years actively working to destroy magic in the world, and that involved just trying to poison and slowly destroy the Targaryen dragons. So, yeah, I'm going. Talk to you later. And just leaves. He just throws out this theory that, in reality, the Meisters themselves have been conspiring ever since the Targaryens first arrived to kill their dragons, to weaken their dragons, to bring about the end of magic in the world, to which Marwyn the Mage feels like he's the one exception to that rule and actively uh, aspiring to bring magic back to relevance. So the theory posits that this whole thing about dragons getting tiny because they were in the dragon pit, that the Meisters have put forward and tried to convince everyone is the truth, is merely the Meisters covering for the fact that they were actively working through the fact that they were associated with every house, including the Targaryens, to ensure that what dragons there were in the world got increasingly weaker, feel, uh, more feeble, and ultimately died out. So, given these options, given the, the devastation that was the Targaryen Civil War, given the limited population of dragons that remained, given the downfall of magic after the fall of Valyria anyway, and given the possibility that the Meisters themselves were conspiring to do this, the theory that the dragon play, played a key role is suspect at best. And regardless, the set that they used in the show was bitty compared to the massive edifice that was described in the books. So, book nerd bitching number one out the way. Any questions or comments from you, sir? A couple things. One is Fire and Blood, which is going to cover a lot of this in much more detail, is actually going to be out November 20th. Um, It's going to be great. We're going to read it. We're going to podcast about it. We're going to talk about it. Um, Number two is you've touched on the dragon pit and the dance of dragons and the downfall of the dragons is one of my favorite parts of this world. One of my favorite plots and narratives of this world. 
Um, so this was always going to pass. Always. Uh, your vote total, though, is kind of astounding. 431 out of 435 in the House and 99 out of 100 senators passed this one. Go ahead, Mr. President, sign this bill. Good job, Spencer. Loved it. Yeah, and it, it's one of several topics. In, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. It's one of several topics I'm covering here, which the show offers a very flippant theory about of where even a watching of the show, but particularly going through the books, just shows how much more complex and history and everything else is attached behind it, which I know, as we said with the as we said with the set and as we said with the writing itself, the show just doesn't have the time or the budget to do these things justice, which is, it's a shame, ultimately, because as you said, if they ever filmed The Storming of the Dragon Pit, ah, we're renting out a movie theater to watch that on the big screen. Yeah, and like, the thing that drives me nuts with the some of the Song of Ice and Fire community, not like part that i like but some of them they're like well quit writing about the targaryen kings i want to hear about the main story and it's like yeah i want winds of winter too but on november 20th we're going to get over 700 pages of history of the targaryen kings so stop saying that george R. R. martin doesn't write or that we're not getting content because that's going to be incredible like i'm really looking forward to it not as much as i'd be looking forward to winds of winter but yeah. probably about 80 to 90 percent as much and i would offer that one of the things George R. R. Martin does pretty well, and, and that Tolkien is viewed as the golden god of, is that what you write in the present, for the quote-unquote present of your story, has to be governed by what occurred before. That if this is going to be a realistic world, if this is going to be a world that actually has living people in it, the past governs and influences the present. So the more we know about what occurred, the more the world is completed by what the Targaryen dynasty was, by how it fell, by how it ruled, the more it completes our picture of the present sense the more it completes our understanding of how people feel about the idea of Danny coming back into power as a Targaryen again, with dragons. So the more we know about the background, the more we know about the present. And I like that he's rounding out his world in that regard. Yeah, me too. Anyway, great segment. All right, next one. Next one. Uh, should we refer him to go to the revolt about the, against the Mad King or Green Seers? Let's do Green Seers and then tie it up with uh, revolt against the Mad King. Okay. This is a bit of an inconsistency on the show or... Just an odd word choice in the show. The show likes to pick a single phrase to refer to a group of people and stick with that. It's the reason that they are referred to as the White Walkers. We don't hear about others. We don't hear about ice demons. We don't hear about anything else. They are the White Walkers. Just to make it easier for the show, just for the people who watch the show to follow what's going on, to know clearly that, okay, it's that you're talking about. Because of that, Bran continually refers to himself and the person he learned from as the Three-Eyed Crow, which... We know what that is, even if nobody on the show apparently does whenever he references it. But what does it actually mean? The Three-Eyed Crow, Bran gets that phrase from uh, dreams that he continually has as he's growing up, of this Three-Eyed Crow or Three-Eyed Raven, who guides him through these various things and keeps trying to bring him north. Keeps trying to get him to come well north of the Wall to come to wherever this particular potential mentor is. What the Three-Eyed Crow and the Three-Eyed Raven actually is, though, rather than just merely that title, is what's called a Green Seer, the last of the Green Seers. Um, we can go into who he is at the end, but as for Green Seers themselves, Green Seers is a term that we get from the Children of the Forest, one of the original native inhabitants of Westeros, the uh, tribal people that were, well, that were well tied to the land, to the magic, the forest, and everything else, before the First Men, the Andals, and everybody else ever came to Westeros in the first place. The Green Seers were, in some ways, a different and more developed form of warg. We hear from the few children of the forest that are still left that one in a thousand of their population were wargs, so that they were capable of moving their minds and animals and 
even potential people. But one in a thousand of them were green seers. People so tied into the magic of the old gods that in some ways they were more meant for the next life than they were for the present one, based on what they were capable of. Among the children of the forest, they could tell from the very moment they were born. They were always born with green eyes or red eyes, that they were always sickly, that they were always weak, that they were always meant to live deeply unpleasant and quick and painful and sickly lives. But over the course of those short lives, the magical abilities that they could summon and bring to the world, we hear about described more as myth than possible actuality. So kind of like Jojen, right? Jojen is purposely even asked by Bran at one point, are you a green seer? Because Jojen's the one who introduces a lot of these comments to Bran. And Jojen kind of retreats from that. He says, no, I merely have dreams. I am not of them. I don't know. Uh, but this is just what Jojen says. Jojen could be lying. He could be wrong to a certain degree. But he very much distinctly says, I'm not at that level. I don't have that potential. I've got prophecy. I've got visions. But the green seers are entirely something else. We here described what green seers were capable of. And it's amazing what they apparently did in the ancient world and could potentially through brand do today. We hear about them being able to command hordes of thousands of animals to descend upon and attack the first men when they first landed and started chopping down the forests of the children of the forest. We hear about them literally animating trees and bringing them to life and using them as weapons of war against the, the settlements of the first men. We hear about them being able to see through the eyes of the weirwood trees, the apparently integral point of their magic, wherever the weirwoods are, to have vision in all parts at all times because of it. We hear about them summoning magic of such incredible ability that it literally changed the shape of the world. That when the first men first invaded Westeros, we're talking thousands of years in the past, they crossed a land bridge that used to connect Westeros and Essos called the Arm of Dorne. The Green Seers went to that and went, okay and blew it apart. They literally called the waters, they called the storms of the heavens, and now the Arm of Dorne is nothing more than a fractured, smoking collection of archipelago of islands where once there was a very large land bridge. The few, men, the few first men that survived that or continued to come by sea continued to attack the children of the forest, and as they moved farther north, the children of the forest, upon seeing their armies descend upon the neck, the point that separates the north and the south, flooded that as well and turned it into a poisonous, boggy swamp that it is now today. Upon which the first men then went, oh, um, that peace treaty you originally proposed, uh, proposed uh, let, let's sign that now. We're, we're good. We'll be, we'll be best buddies for the next 10,000 years. The green, another key aspect of the Green Seers, one they talk about most frequently on the show, is their vision. Bran talks about how he's able to see everything, past, uh, everything from the past. 2020. 2020 through all of them. We talk. We we heard OSHA talk about uh, the wildling caretaker of brand prior seasons, that uh, the green seers of the old gods could see through the weirwood trees, and much of what we know about them says that that is not only true, but is almost a limited description of what they're capable of. We see Bran on the show be able to see things very clearly when there's no weirwood in the room. We, it's discussed in his training that in many ways weirwoods, while important to the magic of the children of the forest, important to the green seers are like training wheels on the bicycle that they're learning to ride. That they provide an easy means of vision, they provide a basis by which their magic can be supported and grow, but the Green Seers, once they've learned their full craft, can see far beyond that. What the Weirwoods actually are, and which says fascinating things by which, even if Bran is indeed the last Green Seer, how much Green Seers persist in the world, is that they are the combined consciousness of every Green Seer that's ever previously lived. 
Vince described them their weak and whoa. sickly lives. What? What's up, man? I said, whoa, that's, that's yeah. uh, a heady concept. It's described that in their weak and sickly lives, that as they're slowly plugged into these weirwood trees, they slowly in many ways live more through them than they do through themselves, that upon their death, they are essentially uploaded into this kind of weirwood net. And that in truth, the old gods, as they were, are all of the green seers that have ever lived, all of their knowledge, everything that they've ever seen, everything they've ever experienced, every word of advice that they could ever summon, all piled together. They are the ancestral memory of the faith of the children of the forest, extending through the first men for thousands upon thousands of years. And such is the power of their influence, such is the power of their magic, that even when the first men and the Andals tried to cut down the weirwood trees, the magic in some ways still persists. We, as we talked about previously with the ghost of High Heart and that grove at the middle of the Riverlands, that even a chopped down grove of weirwood trees still whispers, still provides prophecies, still provides a basis of magic. So what all this leads to, what all this leads us to ponder, is that, well, one point to bring out is that I've described this all as magic of the children of the forest, but as we've seen before in the show, wargs are very much part of humanity too. And given that the last two people we see to be green seers, the Three-Eyed Raven and Bran, which to point it out, Three-Eyed Raven in the show is just kind of a dude in the books. He's actually one of the most important Targaryens to ever live and is fascinating and we could dedicate an entire episode to talking about him. Blood Raven! And, Blood Raven, Brad and Rivers, he's an incredible character, which the show, I think, just basically wrote out. But despite the fact this is very much children of the forest magic, it appears to in some ways be influencing vanity too. We see plenty of human wargs, particularly in the far north where the magic of the children of the forest and the weirwoods are still strong. And we also see green seers among them too. So we only ever seen out of Blood Raven, Three-Eyed Raven, and uh, Bran the levels of vision. We've seen that they can... In, that they can talk, that they can see things that have happened either in the present, or either happening in the present or happening in the past. They maybe even can whisper to people in the past to a certain degree. We see Brand do that a few times, where people seemingly react to him in the past based on what he says. But we've never seen the level of magic that's described as occurring back in the ancient world by the old children of the forest green seers. Is this something that humanity is not capable of? Are there simply not is there simply not enough old gods magic in the world? Was this something that many green seers needed to come together with? We don't know. Or is it also possible that Brand we've not seen even a limited degree of what Brand may be ultimately capable of as he continues to learn more of the magic of the old gods? So back to you, sir. Any comments, questions? No, um, I think it's an important topic to cover because I think the show does not give you a heck of a lot of specifics about it. And even if you read the books and you do a first pass, you're probably still confused about Green Scene. So this one passes, but it passes with only two thirds of the congressmen uh, actually voting. I can, because they, I can amend the Constitution with that. They all they all went home uh, because they're a little too confused to vote on this measure. And only about half the senators, <laughs> but it still passes. It goes to the president's desk. Good job by you, Spencer. Two out of two so far. All right. Now let's go for the hat trick. Uh, our last one that we've got. Whoa! Was that a sports reference? I was a try. Did I get it right? You did, and that's two in one episode. I'm impressed. I get points for that, too. Um, Revolt Against the Mad King. We hear Bran say a little bit flippantly when he sees that uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna were getting married that the whole revolt was built on a lie. I knew you were going to hate that line. <laughs> It's such a limited romantic reading about what the revolt is about. You're I mean, not wrong. Just even, just even focusing on what the characters in the show already knew, or what even people talk about, 
Very few people frame the revolt against the Mad King as, well, it's because Rhaegar kidnapped and raped Lyanna. Of all the characters we see in the books and show, really only one ever says that. Robert Baratheon. Who's got his own reasons to be really bitter about how those things played out? Most of the time, pretty much everyone just kind of compliments Rhaegar as being kind of sort of awesome, and it's, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that he had to die. But even ignoring the fact that most people in the world don't view the kidnapping as being the real reason that the revolt started, there's a lot of other factors at play that the show really hasn't talked about or addressed. One of the biggest ones being is that the world of Westeros at the time, under the rule of the Mad King, was a powder keg that was going to blow if any spark hit that the fact that Rhaegar kidnapped Lyanna when he's did indeed set a spark that in some ways contributed directly to the revolt. There's other events at play that we could talk about. But there were so many other things that were ready to go, where people were already lighting their torches and getting ready to march at the time this happened. A revolt was inevitable, and it's worth talking about what was driving it and who was leading it. This kind of really tends into uh, two key theories that exist in the fandom, of which, well, one key theory is described in two different ways. is either the Great Lord's Conspiracy, or what's colloquially dubbed the Southron, the Southron Ambitions. It's the, Lord, Lord, uh, it's the term that Lady Barbary Dustin gives for it. One of the key unwritten rules at Westeros going into this moment, which is, again, we're talking about 20, 30 years in the past at this point, was that of the Great Lords that ruled each of what were formerly the Seven Kingdoms, they would, each generation, marry one of the lesser lords in their own region. That was the rule. Everyone followed that, to the point in the one generation before what we're talking about, every single great lord married one of the junior, one of the junior lords inside of their own realm. That happened. That was the basis by which each one kept a, re a degree of continuity, and nobody interfered with, it, with any of the uh, power dynamics inside of each, each, each person's other realm. In one generation, almost every single family broke that rule. We see a web of marriage alliances suddenly emerge during what's now the tail end of the Mad King's rule that almost astounds if you try to put it together all on one page. We see um, Brandon Stark, the heir to Winterfell, marry Catelyn Tully, the, uh, or was, uh, uh, be proposed to marry Catelyn Tully the uh, oldest daughter of Hostertelly, the Lord of the Riverlands. We see Lysa Aaron be marketed to marry Jaime Lannister, the presumably at the time heir to the Lannister throne. We see Robert Baratheon set up to marry uh, Lyanna Stark. Again, Robert Baratheon, the heir of, of, uh, of uh, House Baratheon, marrying the oldest daughter of House Stark. We see John Aaron take Robert Baratheon and uh, Ned Stark as his wards, essentially as his adoptive children, for years. We have... Much evidence to believe that John Aaron's uh, heir was sent to be a war in the North for a certain period of time. We have um, Brandon Stark spending a large portion of his youth learning among Southern lords, developing Southern friends to the point when he marches on King's Landing to get his sister back. It's primarily Vale and Riverland's uh, young lord sons that go with him to do it. All of this indicates a level of, in of marriage alliances forming between the noble houses that's never been seen previously in Westeros. And so what this theory puts forward, and there's a lot of evidence to back it, is that when this was happening, this was getting, this was when um, the Mad King, Aerys Targaryen's madness, was becoming obvious to everyone. It was already becoming destabilizing. And so it appears that the various lords of Westeros got together to essentially said, okay, let's make a realm of alliances so that if we ever need to pull the trigger, we're ready to go. 
And it became so obvious to a certain point that even the Mad King himself started to make various steps to intervene to prevent it. That we see that once the rumor got back to him that Jamie was set to marry Lysa Tully, which apparently that rumor got back to him possibly by Cersei herself, who didn't want her brother to marry somebody else, uh, kind of very much in Sansa style of her telling Cersei that her dad was about to leave and everything, um, he immediately has Jamie Lannister sworn into the Kingsguard so that he can't get married. That when a rumor gets back to him, apparently from Varys himself, that Rhaegar Targaryen, his own son and heir, is actively participating in these plots and has purposely created this great tourney at Harrenhal to bring that about. And actually, that's worth going to a little bit of detail about. We've, heard, we've referenced before in the show the, uh, the great tourney at Harrenhal. This was meant to be the largest tourney in the history of Westeros. Uh, and just to give you a hint at its scale, it was brokered by one of Rhaegar Targaryen's closest friends in the Kingsguard, Oswell Went. He goes to his family that rules the ruined castle of Harrenhal and says, let's throw the largest tourney that anyone's ever seen. Let's make it so large that the grand prize is going to be three times larger than the one Tywin Lannister just gave for the tournament that he threw in the Westerlands. Hmm. Let's invite... Let's invite every single higher lord in all of Westeros to attend. Let's hmm. get all of the Starks to... Well, you're, you're humming a lot. Hmm, I wonder why yeah. he wanted to throw said tourney. Yeah, uh, let's, let's bring down all the northern lords, despite the fact they practically never come north... They never come south, to the point that when the uh, hour of the wolves happens during the, uh, during the Targaryen Civil War, that everybody wrote about how incredible that was that the Starks came south. Let's get all of the Stormlands. Let's get all of the Vale Lords. Let's get all of the Riverlands Lords. Let's even get Tywin and all of the Westerlands Lords, despite the fact that they're so pissed at the Targaryens because the Targaryen king just refused Cersei's, uh, uh, the, the offer of Cersei to marry Rhaegar Targaryen. Let's even get them coming to the tournament. Interesting. So that uh, we've got essentially representation from all the major lords north of King's Landing all together. I think they even invite a lot of lords from the... Um, the uh, the uh, Reach and the um, the Martell lands as well in Dorne, and uh, let's let Le- Rhaegar Targaryen go personally and participate and officiate the tournament, and let's hold all these vast quiet feasts behind locked doors because that's no problem at all. Hmm, interesting. So the Mad King looks at this, and I'm, I'm actually it's even it's, it's even occurring to me as I'm describing is that, that even as this was going on, they were even brokering more marriage alliances. Like Hostertelli proposed that his brother. Um, um, the Blackfish would actually marry into the second most powerful family in the Reach under House Tyrell, the Red Wines. That ain't happening. Just, no, yeah, there's a variety of reasons why that's not happening. But it was proposed. It, there's this network of alliances that they're forming everywhere. I think it was even proposed after the whole Cersei marrying to Rhaegar fell through that Tywin proposed that the Red Viper marry Cersei to form an alliance between the Martells. Again, no one of these marriage alliances was ever was ever normally happening at any one time and i'm talking about like 10 or 15 that are all going on at the same time so the red the mad king looks at some of the evidence he's getting from this from apparently varus which again just raises questions where varus's loyalty actually are or not and decides that he's personally going to go to harrenhal so as to basically interfere with this uh, newest part of the scheme which to a certain degree works. Uh, Tywin Lannister sees the Mad King is coming and basically stays home while still sending <laughs> several of his banner lords to speak for him. Good job. Very few of, Good job, very Tywin few of these, Yeah, very few of these closed-door mm-hmm. meetings occur. It doesn't work for him in the sense that this is probably the first time in 10 years that the Mad King has ever left the Red Keep. 
everyone sees that he looks about 40 years older than he should be, that he hasn't cut his nails in years, that his hair is greasy and going down his back, and that he looks about as insane as everyone's slowly realizing that he actually is. Now, all of this is, you know, in some ways justifying or feeding into uh, the Mad King's own paranoia. And so in some ways it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy for him. But a lot of what I've just talked about is very much just circumstantial. You know, it's odd that all of these lords are getting married. It's odd mm, that they're forming marriage nice. alliances. It's odd that your own prince is going to talk with all these lords at various moments whenever he has mm. the opportunity. But, you know, these things happen. Yeah, Who knows? Sure. <laughs> the real backup for this theory is, is that we have two characters directly in the books say it was happening. We never hear Varys talk about it, because Varys is a much more mysterious character in the books than he is in the show. But one of the first ones we have is, is Lady Barbary Dustin, who is unique in that she's one of the northern lords that we sing and spend a lot of time with, who hates the Starks. I love that like, character too, man. She uh, is like a truth-bombed robber. She does not let anything, she doesn't hold anything back. No, she's a wonderful character in the sense that she hates the Starks, but she hates uh, the... Um, as you say, she's willing to give. She's willing to call a spade a spade at every possible opportunity. Uh, so she bashes the phrase for their responsibility in the Red Wedding to no end. Uh, so she talks about these Southron ambitions. She specifically talks about that Rickard Stark, Ned and Brandon and Lyanna's father, an impressive man in his own right, we can talk about it in some detail later, um, was purposefully putting together this web of alliances in the South to expand his influence, to expand his control. She doesn't necessarily theorize about why, but just that he'd been convinced in some ways to do it by the various Meisters under his command, which, given that the Meisters would be the ones that would be communicating these various messages back and forth between the various lords, provides a certain degree of evidence that at least was happening, just leaves open as to why. We also know from the text that uniquely among these various lords, among John Aaron, among Rickard Stark, among Tywin Lannister, among Hoster Tully, among countless high lords of Westeros at the time, They'd all fought together very closely during the War of the Nine Pity Kings. When they were children, some of them were children. I mean, uh, Rickard Stark and uh, John Aaron were a little bit older. But they'd all served under the same command. They'd all fought in the same battles. They all maintained a certain degree of friendship afterwards, which came to the fore later on. What's more absolutely certain evidence that this was happening is that we know Rhaegar Stark purposely told Jaime Lannister that it was happening. When Rhaegar Stark has come back from having this prolonged... Well, from the people of King's Landing, they have no idea where Rhaegar Stark kind of disappeared to after he kidnapped Lyanna. Rhaegar Stark? Kind of, what? Sorry, Rhaegar Targaryen. I'm, I'm mixing up John at <laughs> this point. Uh, when Rhaegar Targaryen, uh, quote-unquote, kidnaps Lyanna, he just kind of disappears, and no one knows where he goes for, like, the next six to nine months. Uh, and then just kind of shows back up after uh, Mad King sends a few members of the Kingsguard to go get him. And he comes back, but the three members of the Kingsguard don't, which is relevant for the whole Tower of Joy thing. Uh, as he's riding off to battle, Jamie Lannister is specifically instructed to stay behind. The Mad King wants him close, because he wants to basically keep him as a hostage so that Tywin Lannister doesn't try anything uppity. He goes to complain to Rhaegar that he feels like he should be at his side, that Rhaegar's going off to fight Bobby B, the Battle of the Trident, that... Uh, Jamie Lannister as a Kingsguard should be right there with him fighting through the the northern the uh, the host that's formed against him. To which Rhaegar kind of reassures him with, oh, I'm, I, I think I've actually got the quote here. I want to do this right. Uh, 
He assures him with, when, the ba when this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but, well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. He's very plainly referring to the idea of a great council. Great councils being an important historic event that's occurred over the course of Westeros for many years, by which Targaryen kings are decided by committee. Be it replacing kings that have proven incompetent or are basically out of touch, or being putting a king in place when there's no clear heir in power. This is Rhaegar straight up admitting that this conspiracy is true, that he's actually been brokering it, that he in many ways put a bit of the kibosh on it himself when he chose to have a fling with with Lyanna rather than continue through with the planning that had apparently been worked out, but that he still intends to overthrow his father once, the, once this revolt is put down. So all of this is evidence that everyone was aware that the Targaryen dynasty was getting corrupt, was getting violent, was getting paranoid, and quite truly mad, and that active steps were already being taken in place. Movements were being made, alliances were being brokered, to bring about the end of a dynasty, or at least bring about the end of the Mad King, and that this kidnapping of Lyanna Stark was in many ways just one event in what was already an incredibly destabilized realm. And that even after it occurred, another event very much had to take place before a revolt started, is that after he kidnapped him, after Brandon after Bran Stark was then arrested by the Mad King, after him and Rickard Stark were killed, Mad King sent a letter off to John Aaron, who still held Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon as his wards, and said, kill them immediately, send me their heads. And that was the moment the rebellion truly began. <laughs> it's a big ask. It's a big ask. If John Aaron had done his duty as a lord of the realm, had done his duty as a loyal servant of the House Targaryen, he would have sent their heads back in a box. Instead, not only did he refuse to do it, he called his banners. He summoned his armies and told them, I am marching to war. Go home, get to your realms, and bring armies with me, because we are an open revolt. It's called Robert's Rebellion because he eventually assumed the mantle of it and became king. But in truth, it is John Aaron's rebellion, because he was the one that was given the choice by which the future of Westeros was decided. Well, and, and, the... and Robert was also the best general, right? Nah, Ned was the best general. Robert was basically put in charge because he had the blood. Robert was a hell of a warrior, but as a commander in the field, it, Ned was the one of the ones that was leading most of his successful victories. Yeah, okay, so warrior then, okay, not general. But he, he still had a, a, a great uh, military um, he did. Uh, reputation, right? He did a great military reputation. He had a wonderful command of troops. He had a good strategic and tactical sense. But Ned was the sober commander that his armies often needed. Um, but all of this basically just says that Brand's little flippant description that the, the rebellion was formed in a lie is like some little romantic saying you'd put in a children's story description of what happened. Ooh, the, real politic, the real politics that are going behind this are massive. And Bran knows all of this because he can see everything. So his little flippant description is purely for the audience's benefit to make this sound a lot more, more romantic than in reality it was a complex series of political maneuvers that were going in place for years before Rhaegar did that particular act that essentially made it inevitable that the Targaryen dynasty would either burn to the ground or would emerge again with a very new ruler on the throne. Well, I take issue with something you just said. You said Bran knows all this because he can see everything, but I think as evidenced by the conversation with Sam, he basically, he has a library, but he hasn't read every book. Right. So it's he, he. Yeah, he has access to all of these. 
yeah. events in, in history, but I'm not sure that he's actually gone through them in the same way that he had access to the marriage between Rhaegar and Lyanna, but not until Sam's prompting did he actually pull up that memory and, and look through it. Very true, and it leads to a practical question of where I'd love to be a person in the audience around him once he goes into one of these visions. Does he watch them in real time while various people just kind of look around embarrassed until he comes back to the conversation? Yeah. Or does he see these things instantaneously? I think he has to sit through them. I think I think what you had is Sam just sitting there awkwardly for like 25 minutes until he came back and went, yeah, you're right. As, as Bran just kind of narrates a scene that Sam's not watching, it's like, uh, what what are you talking about? The whole revolt, rebellion was formed in a lie? What, what's going on right now? <laughs> All right. Well, that was a good one. Um, I liked that one because, I mean, you're just right. Like, you just are. Like, the, the fact, there were so many events that were leading up to the Mad King's overthrow. Now, one caveat I would point in this is that I don't think it was inevitable that John Aaron, the Baratheons, and the Starks would revolt. But I do think it was inevitable that the Mad King would be overthrown. And what I mean by that is if Rhaegar had not quote captured or really fell in love with and left with Lyanna Stark the overthrow would likely have been Rhaegar overthrowing his father I very much think that was the case and I think very much Rhaegar was brokering that with this marriage alliance that had formed that Rhaegar either helped contribute to the marriage alliance or was aware that it was taking place and was trying to get it on his side to form as the firm basis for a grand council that would hopefully peacefully overthrow his father I think that it just then got subverted as a result of a mix of things of which Rhaegar was only one of many parts. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, Spencer, this one passes very easily uh, I, through both the uh, the House and the Senate. You pulled the hat trick, the three-point play, um, the three-pointer, the field goal, whatever sports metaphor you want. I'd like it at precise vote total so I know who I have got to campaign against in the next election cycle, but we can do that off camera. <laughs> camera uh all right buddy well this was this has been great i've enjoyed uh going through season seven of game of thrones with you um i know that we we kind of uh recorded this at an odd time considering the show's production schedules but for those that listened thank you um and hopefully uh before season eight starts uh you can revisit these pods and and get yourself acquainted with what happened in the lead up to the final season of hbo's game of thrones spencer anything you want to add yeah, I think uh, that uh, Lee and I have talked about previously that we're probably going to take a week or two break as we ponder where we're going to go from here. But please, come on back to us. We are in no way intending to be idle before the next season starts. We've got a never – we have basically Brand's encyclopedia and library of material to cover with, both with respect to the show or with respect to any form of media and other shows that we find interesting. So if you want to come back for great and entertaining commentary and, re- and uh, recaps on some of your favorite shows and material, we are here for you. Yeah, a couple of things we've talked about. Um, we're definitely going to do other seasons of Game of Thrones, obviously. We're going to do Westworld. Um, we're likely going to do at least one episode of Fire and Blood, mm-hmm. which releases on uh, November 20th. And then we're probably going to do a live um, watching of a Game of Thrones episode over New Year's when me and Spencer get together. So you got that to look forward to. I think probably the next... Um... Oh, hey, buddy. Pause. Pause. <laughs> no, we're leaving it in. <laughs> What's he mad at? Spencer's dealing with his dog. All right, we could debate leaving in the dog or not, but he's outside now. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. So to just reiterate that we're going to do at least an episode of Fire and Blood. And then we're also going to do um, a probably a, a live watching of a Game of Thrones episode over New Year's when Spencer and I get together. The next episode that you are going to listen to on or you're going to see on this uh, Got Questions podcast feed is a review of the Game of Thrones concert experience, which I am going to be attending Hello. next week in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to do a one person review on that. Uh, talk about uh, you know what it's like. I know a lot of folks in the online community have questions about that. You know, is that something I should go to or not? So I'll be answering that question. Uh, but other than that, uh, enjoyed this, Spencer. Enjoyed going through the season with you. Indeed, it was quite a bit of fun, and uh, looking forward to the next episode of whatever we do. Yeah, me too. Okay, everybody, uh, you can check us out at www.mangumtalks.com. Upper right hand corner, contact us is how you can submit questions, comments, or thoughts. You can also check us out at, at Mangum Talks on Twitter and our Mangum Talks Facebook page. Thanks, everybody. 